Digital Gonzo episode 151, recorded Monday the 31st of September 2013, Ghostbusters. Ghosts. Hello, Ghostbusters. They're real. You do? They're mean. You have? They're here. Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They catch the ghost that won't stay dead. They're armed. They're dangerous. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. All right, that's bad. Okay. All right, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. They're professionals. Oh, I'm the chairman of the largest paranormal removal company in America. Did you see it? They're all that stands between you and the end of the world. The city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. Real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Your girlfriend lives in the corner penthouse of Spook Central. Want this body. Is this a trick question? Are you stick? Hold! Heat him up! Smoke! Make him hard! Ready! Ghostbusters. Starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis. Coming to save the world this summer. Ghostbusters. We came, we saw, we kicked it. This was the first movie I ever saw in the cinema in late 1984, aged four. And in many ways, it might still be the best. To a child barely acquainted with the process of watching a movie anyway, with our 12-inch wooden TV set with push buttons that I didn't watch for much more than He-Man and the Masters of the Universe and Dog Tanyon and the Three Muskerhounds, my world was small and silly, replete with the innocence and ignorance of childhood. Not only was this an introduction to smart, funny, grown-up dialogue and situations delivered in a dry, witty, yet heartfelt manner, but it showed me New York City a place that became instantly special to me. It showed me ghosts in a way that picture books and cartoons simply couldn't convey. It showed me the unlikely heroes able to deal with a threat to the entire world, and it drew open the gold-inlaid double doors of the world of cinema. I fell in love right then and there. To discuss this rather special film are four professionals here to bust the ghosts of rambling and conjecture. Dr. Matt Ramsey, I'll do try this at home. Back off, man, I'm a scientist. Dr. Joshua Garrity of Cane and Rinse. If somebody asks you whether you're a god, you say yes. Dr. Neil Taylor of Game Burst. We came, we saw, we kicked it. You can say ass on this show. Actually, I always remember that scene without the ass because... Because on the trailer, they could have cut it off, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. like, we can't say ass in a trailer, there'll be anarchy. But that's the bit I always remember, is we came, we saw, we, we kicked, kicked it. it. And then cut it, whoa, careful there. <laughs> and Dr. Gary Blower of Game Burst. That's a big Twinkie. 
It certainly is. So we're going to jump right in and start on the first second, taking you all the way through the film, exploring characters, actors, dialogue, situations, equipment, theories, effects, music, and themes as we go. Next week, we'll be covering the much maligned underdog that is Ghostbusters 2, as well as the real Ghostbusters cartoon and the recent video game, which may be the closest we'll ever get to a cast reunion of Ghostbusters 3. Right, so we'll start with the creepy opening. Oh, for goodness sake. (laughs) That's timing. Hang on a second. Okay, so we'll start with the creepy opening, and this, obviously, because by virtue of the music, is the creepiest that the Columbia woman has ever been. Now, since 1984, the Columbia woman has been updated to that slightly more wholesome-looking lady, but this is a really creepy, sort of like, the fact that it starts off just absolutely silent, and then it goes, it's the Yamaha keyboard going... And you've got that sort of shining light that it makes it seem like you're looking already into a portal to another world. This is one of the most effective openings to a movie ever. It's just the logo. Whenever I see it or hear it, I'm looking for like all the um, VHS scratches and stuff over it because I saw see this film so many times on VHS. And so that you know, like there are certain movies that, particularly um, stuff from the early '80s, which. You know, I would have watched loads and loads as a teenager. Um, that that just immediately evokes it. Now, my, you know, my daughter watches Ghostbusters about three times a week, so I, you nice. know, I see it a, a lot. Yes, um, and every time I see that, I think to myself, it doesn't look right without all the uh, <laughs> the weird <laughs> pixelated scratching that you get on it. Same as when I get to the forty-five minutes and seven seconds mark on the name of the rose, and it doesn't start going fuzzy because the VHS yeah. copy got stuck on that bit. I don't know why. I don't know what happens at forty-five minutes in, but that. <laughs> <laughs> so we start on the library. Actually, we start with the uh, the lion outside the New York Library, which I, I had the great fortune to visit, and looks exactly that. Well, looked exactly the same in 1998 as it did here. And the the gargoyles are the eyes of the city. This is a constantly recurring theme throughout uh, Ghostbusters, and this uh, lion acts as a stone uh, statue slash gargoyle there. Once you're inside, it's actually really... It, it, it preys on... Everyone's felt creeped out in an old building when they're, uh, they're alone, or they're supposed to be alone, they feel that they're not alone. And it's merciless in the way that it sort of puts you into the shoes of this um, this old librarian sort of pottering around through there. And it, it holds on her. So, yeah, you guys talk about the librarian. This is what you call... This is a great slow build. Mm. This just personifies a slow build and is why practical effects are awesome (laughs) they are (laughs) though not necessarily inherently better than cg they are they can be used to brilliant effect this is just how you how you you make the most of what you got because these are some really simple effects you know Mm. uh there's a scene where she walks between two stacks Mm -hmm. and you just get a couple of books cross over and it's just done behind her. It's all done behind her. It's fantastic. And it's it's kind of weird because it makes me think, what's this ghost trying to do? Shuffle because books around. Well, it, it, she's a librarian. I think the ghost is a librarian as mm, well. Mm. So 
you know, she, you got the books moving and it, it's this slow build to, yeah, well, <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. Oh, it's such a great... Do you not spoil it? Okay, like, major the... Ghostbusters spoilers here. Well, it's, it's nearly that. 30 years old. I think one of the key things is, you, I'm trying to, I can't remember everything that Ghost does. It does, it does the move in the books. It moves the books, and then the cards fly oh, out yeah. of the uh, card yeah. uh, stacks. Does anyone Which know how is... they did this? I, I was trying to think how they could do it so as smoothly as they did, and I can't think of a way they could. I could work out how to do it, like, chunks of them, but mm. I don't know. So I can assume they moved blown, something. Be blown, like, it's compressed blown. air. Yeah. Yeah. Correct, yeah. They had tubes, uh, brass tubes with compressed air. Behind the uh, uh, cabinets uh, it was a false wall with guys pushing the uh, shelves forwards and then blowing through the... Well, they were blowing compressed air through the uh, tubes to flip the cards at the air. It's really effective, though, because if we, like, film nuts, can't immediately tell how they did it... It's not really a technique that ever really gets used. Not to this kind of creepy effect, anyway. Again, it's that slow build of just watching this lady walk through and then just that odd bit of the book suddenly playing. And then these drawers pop open and these cards just go flying up and start raining down. Which she doesn't initially notice at first, which is Mm. great. One drawer comes out and then another one comes out and then the cards start flipping up. And at first it's a really quiet noise. Mm. And then as more and more come out and they all start flying, but it gets this absolute cacophony of noise and she turns around and shits herself. I, it still looks great. I watched it Saturday or yesterday. I can't remember which. I, I was still, I thought I looked fantastic. It just looked so like a ghost was doing it. It was brilliant. For anyone who doesn't own the Blu-ray, by the way, I heartily recommend the Blu-ray. Get the 4K one. 4K? Who's got a 4K TV, anyway? No, there's, there's one that's just directly uh, from the 4K mm-hmm. of the film. Which Would that actually, still look... How does that it, work, then? It looks... It's, it's had more work done it than this transfer, uh, the Blu-ray transfer of the one we So bought. could you feasibly just put that on a regular 1080p TV? It's not... I don't think it puts it out in 4K, but it's... Well, no, I would imagine not. But you need a special, it's, it's super expensive TV. from the 4K TV. print. So okay. It's a lot more... Cl- it's also, I think it's been cleaned up more, so you, like... The one thing I did notice about the Blu-ray is lots of film grain. There is a... But yeah. Film grain is good. <laughs> film grain is good in cheap horror films, not no, in the triple H. No, film grain is absolutely should be there. That's how it was originally shown. Well, the 4K copy is £8.90, and I'm that much of a Ghostbusters nut that I'll be getting that, I think. Uh, it also has a UV copy, so that's for you, Matt. <laughs> Thank is that, you. Is that, is that that's actually available now, is it? The yeah. Uh, oh, hang on. Let me just double-check. 2nd of September, so yes, literally just now. It's weird. This past month. Okay. It's, you know, for the 29-year anniversary. It's the one they all celebrate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so yeah, the the old lady is scared, and it's it plays out like a sequence in a genuine horror movie, and it's not until the exact point where she goes, ah! and there's the scream. Something strange in the neighborhood. Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters. Something weird, and it don't look good. Who you gonna call? That you realise, oh, whatever happens to her, it's not going to be as terrible as all that. The ghost just scared her. And you know, ultimately, as, as a child, I think I was, you know, really kind of creeped out up, up until that point. And then because it throws in with the Ghostbusters music, you're like, oh, it can't really be all that bad. Yeah, Which but that's great we've, grown up, we've grown up 
grown up with that Ghostbusters music, so... Yeah, but, I mean, Lyra um, didn't freak out. She went, hey, no. there's something strange in the neighbourhood. <laughs> my daughter's the same. the song before, um, before seeing the film. Yeah. No, mine was exactly the same. I said to her, watch out. I said, it's going to be a bit scary. She goes, no, it won't. And she, was, she wasn't she was scared by any of the bits I thought she would be, and she was freaked out by the things that you wouldn't even consider. I mean, child's minds are weird. Tell me along the way, when we get to a bit that uh, she was uh, freaked out, what's her name? Uh, Imogen. Imogen. Okay, right. It will, I will let you know what bits Lyra was creeped out by because there were a few. I'm probably they're probably the similar because uh, children do see things that we don't. But right. Um, and hey, can we point out ones where we were creeped out by her children? Oh Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because there's a couple. <laughs> um, Josh, you all right? You still there? Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm just waiting to, for the bit where I really get to talk. Sorry. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> when do you really get to talk? <laughs> No, when when the the characters first show up. Oh, right, okay, that's, that's what, just coming. Yeah. Yeah. But one thing I want to point out as well, well, this is a really great trick that they do. Mm. So we've gone through all the specials. We see the li- we see the librarian being scared by the ghost. We don't see the ghost. Yeah, or oh, what yeah. The ghost does. Yeah, I think that's a great trick, especially because later on you see her and she's just a, a woman. So you think, oh, okay, that librarian's just making a big fuss out of nothing. Yeah. Are you kidding uh, me? That is the creepiest ghost I've ever seen. Well, she's just reading she the turns book. Into the mo- yeah, but that's the creepy thing. Oh, you know what? We'll get, we'll get to that as soon as it's get away. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that old lady is like, the arch typical ghost for me that that's something that's really you yeah. know unsettling interesting that you're scared by puppies aren't you josh <laughs> i'm not <laughs> i torture and um what was the other thing Oh, sharks. Uh, well, sharks. Sharks, yeah. sharks are the yeah. big one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they certainly are. Sharks are the big one, but puppies are like definitely number two. <laughs> 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 He's not going to find a shark on his doorstep. Very, very cute puppies. I, it's not that they're scary. I just find anything that's just overly cute, kind of like, uh, are they secretly evil kind of thing. So, oh, I don't can know. I expect you for the Jaws podcast? Um, yeah, actually, but just... I'll be screaming for like 90 minutes during that podcast. <laughs> so what the lady does at the beginning of Jaws for 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah, basically. Okay, so the next bit, uh, with, uh, it cuts to Weaver Hall. Can, and, before you, before you move on, Alex, yep. can we just talk about the logo? Oh because, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's quite a key thing about that. Mm-hmm. So when Ghostbusters actually come out in the UK, it'd been out in the States for six months already mm-hmm. and they had just had this mass marketing pack campaign, mm-hmm. um, I remember it was like all over television. It was like every like children's Saturday morning TV show was wall to wall Ghostbusters for about three months. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by the time it actually came out here, people were just going absolutely mad. And you could get all the merchandise, you know, um, which just had the the Casper the Ghost thing with the line through it mm-hmm. over everything for weeks and weeks and weeks before the movie even came out. I, the first time I can remember, even bigger than Star Wars. Where, nice. you know, the kind of merchandising and marketing of a film was, was just so great and so overpowering. And, and really key to it was the fact that you had this really simple, but ultimately very evocative logo. And there is a bit of background, isn't there, as to how they come about that? I don't know it. Go for it. Well, I believe they did originally want to use, um, a Disney character, uh, which of course, um, being Paramount, they would have frowned upon. Mm. And then they went through a number of different iterations um, until they actually came up with this one, which is actually 
loosely based on the original, like Casper the Ghost from the 50s, but they changed its orientation round. So I think if, if you look at it, it's like the opposite direction to how Casper was normally shown or drawn. And obviously they stuck the line through it. But there was um, a number of sort of legal cases that rumbled on for years over whether they had copyright on it or not. Yeah. Which I believe eventually they won. But, you know, it was, you know, that that logo was worth almost as much as the movie. And, um, you know, to this day, you, you you know, kids see it and they know what it is. Yeah. Well, if you remember at Duplex, got just gone, uh, one of the things I brought home because we found it, I found it in the comic book shop was the Ghostbusters poster. I, it's, it's designed to be utilitarian. The, the idea is that they're, they're, um, like bug exterminators. It's supposed mm. to be just something that they just slap on the side of their van. This would be something mundane that you would see crawling up on the pavement beside you to make you feel like ghosts could actually exist in the real world and that there would be guys who would deal with them who wouldn't be, uh, like super esoteric, like the, like the scientists occasionally come off as, but, you know, smoking teamsters. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that when, when it came out in the UK and I think most of, most of the rest of the world, the posters and the, you know, the, you know, the movie posters and the TV advertisement just had the logo, mm. you know, or they had were Ghostbusters, but they didn't have the actors. So it was like, they were like playing second fiddle really to the so logo. It was, the, this film was an event, you know, yeah. this was, this was the must see movie of, of that year. And it was like that. I mean, I can remember people queuing around the block to get into the first uh, showing. For the logo, stay for the film. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was incredible. I I, I queued. I remember when I was four for this first thing. I'd never queued, I'd never been in the cinema before, so I didn't know why we were queuing up. And obviously at at that age, you don't queue for much. Yeah, you couldn't pre-order. You you, you couldn't pre-book your tickets. You had to queue up to get in. Yeah, that's what it was like. It was the first time I remember going to a movie and it being like that and it was an event in itself actually going. It was quite astonishing. This was the Plaza Cinema in Oxted for me. You see, um, I really envy you two because I wasn't alive when this film no, was in cinema. I would have tried harder. Shush! But to experience this film with an audience for the first time, that that's something special because, you know, the age I am, I watched this film on uh, VHS at home with my dad. And that that's a special experience yeah. in of itself. Yeah. But there's something about seeing an event movie like that with a huge audience who all of them have never seen it before as well. There's something special about that that I'm never going to have, which I'm really envious of you two for that. It can be misleading, Josh. You can, you can be under the impression the Phantom Menace is good. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we still, we do still get them. I mean, every sort of year or two, there is another one, you know, I think the Hobbit would be the last one, but Mm. um, I don't know. I would say Avengers. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, before the Hobbit. I yeah. mean, I, 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 I have seen those kind. Of, I, I mean, I saw the Lord of the Rings films when I was uh, around twelve, thirteen. Mm. Well, so they, but that's that's, that's my one. But you know, there, there are all these classic films that I'm only ever going to experience in the comfort of my own home. And you, you know, there's a part of me that would be like, God, can you imagine being back then, back when this was coming out for the first time, and being a part of those conversations in the schoolyard? You know. I'm never going to experience that with Ghostbusters. So, it's... I remember um, when I was a kid, there was one kid in my class who'd actually seen it when he was in the States on holiday in the summer, and he was a complete shit about it. <laughs> so for like five or six months, he was telling us about all the cool things that happened in it and this, that, and the other, and most of it was bollocks. You know, it wasn't... <laughs> he was making stuff up. thing for you at the end. Yeah, um, no, he didn't, no. I, 
he didn't mention that at all. There's lots of stuff which, when I first saw it, I didn't know was coming. Most of the sort of trailers of the time just showed the stuff in the hotel. Mm-hmm. That was the thing they kept showing. Which I mean, I think uh, even on the Blu-ray, the it's got the kind of theatrical trailers on them, which yeah. give you an impression of that. They didn't reveal very much beyond the first sort of half an hour of the movie, really. Which is a really good idea, and I wish yeah. they'd do that for more films. These yeah, agreed. Yeah. yeah. They did not do that because marketers don't have a clue. They did great with uh, the Dark Knight. We went, we went in not knowing there was going to be Two Face. Remember? Mm. Yeah, that's true. That whole aspect of the film was was carefully shrouded from us in a neat bit of uh, misdirection. Okay, right. So on to minute number two of Ghostbusters. <laughs> Doing well. <laughs> Currently at nearly half an hour, so it's going to be a while. The Milgram experiment. Uh, is it a star? <laughs> Couple uh, of wavy lines. Couple of wavy lines. And he actually gets it. I, tr- I tried to explain this one to Lyra. Why is he doing this? Because he wants to convince the girl she has special powers and make her feel special so she'll kiss him. And that's literally <laughs> why he's doing it. It's, yeah, that's the more than the fact that it's a bit of an asshole. It should have been more than kiss him. <laughs> the Milgram experiment was, um, uh, will you shock, uh, getting the test subjects to shock uh, fucked up is what it was. It was fucked up, but the Fucking point of the experiment crazy. was not to register what the electric shocks would do to the uh, the people being electrocuted, but the people doing it the worked. execution. It was to see how people can be led to approve of something like that. The Milgram experiment in this is a test of the audience, testing them to see if they will approve of seeing the hero of the film being a total dick with the first thing he does. And everyone loves it. Everyone's like, yay, Peter, you total dick. Well, he's a total dick for it, but he's the hero. you got to root for him. But also, the guy <laughs> well, he is shocking is a bit of a douche. Yes. Square. Good guess, but wrong. Is it a star? It is a star. Very good. That's great. Okay. Circle. Close. But definitely wrong. Okay. Figure eight. Incredible. That's five for five. You can't see these, can no, you? No, no. You're not cheating me, are you? No, I swear. They're just coming to me. <laughs> okay. Nervous? Yes. I don't like this. You only have 75 more to go. Okay, what's this one? It's a couple of wavy lines. Sorry, this isn't your lucky day. <laughs> no. Uh, um. We. Uh, um. I. Get a little tired of this. You volunteered, didn't you? We're paying you, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't know you were going to be giving me electric shocks. What are you trying to prove here, anyway? I'm studying the effect of negative reinforcement on ESP ability. The effect? I'll tell you what the effect is. It's pissing me off! Well, then maybe my theory is correct. You can keep the five bucks I've had. I will, mister. Well, well it, it's mainly because the guy who's shocking that guy is Bill Murray. And yeah. Bill Murray is so charismatic that he could just be doing the worst, most deprived thing in front of you. And you'd be like... Uh, like but he's Bill Murray, though, so I still kind of love him. He has at <laughs> times been the funniest man in the world, and I, I posit this is his funniest movie. 
Oh, I, almost so, inarguably, so. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just, I mean, there are films that come close, uh, like uh, Groundhog Day, but mm-hmm. yeah, this is his high point, I think. So let's discuss Peter especially, Venkman himself. I was going to say, especially when you find out most of the time he was ad-libbing. Yeah, that's the thing. He uh, he did a lot of uh, improvisational comedy. The, the, the whole um, script was written, I think I mentioned this on Gonzo before, they uh, retreated to an underground bunker. Uh, it was, uh, I believe, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. And every time the, they uh, had a good line, they'd give it to someone who wasn't them. So... The ethos was make everyone else look good and everyone will look good rather than just scene stealing like any Jim Carrey film. And my God, does it work out? Um, but Murray sort of came in and uh, originally the part was uh, Peter Venkman was going to be given to John Belushi. John Belushi. And John Belushi died, died, became a ghost himself. <clears throat> Hence the uh, the fact that Slimer is an effigy of yep. John Belushi. <laughs> Murray was brought in not last minute, but late in the game uh, for this one. Now, uh, Ackroyd's we'll go get to Ackroyd in a bit, but Ackroyd's original script was completely crazy and it involved a bunch of like armored ghost hunters set going through future, time and space and setting the future and the so spectral like, world. Uh, Fire crews, there was loads yeah. of them, I think. It would have required ten times the budget that they had, and it, it was just just crazy. And, and you could probably do it these days, uh, but the, the studios would still be have cold feet and be skittish about spending that kind of money. So they changed it into a um, starting a business comedy. Peter Venkman himself was, and I'm kind of ashamed to say this, my model for manhood throughout most <laughs> of my childhood years. And I thought, now there is a man who can get shit done. He's funny. Everybody loves him. No, they don't, little no, Alex. Really don't. He's a dick and everybody thinks he's a dick. <laughs> yep. You love him because it's funny to watch him, but that doesn't mean that people around him think he's great. Mm. I actually I said to a girl once, no kiss, and I did not get a kiss. <laughs> The only person who loves him, really, is um, is Ray. Yeah. And even Ray is well aware of the fact he's a massive dick. But he, he still is just too enthusiastic and loves him anyway. But uh, everyone else, Egon is, the, is kind of fairly ambivalent to him. Everyone else just is well aware of the fact he's a dick and they don't like him. He's described as a game show host at times. And ultimately, the, the, the best comparison I can really make, and this is ironic considering the casting later on. He's Garfield. He is the laziest, most sarcastic guy in the world. He doesn't want to have to do anything if he can help it. Um, he's kind of like uh, Vince Vaughn in Dodgeball. If I was going to recast Ghostbusters again, it would be Vince Vaughn in this role. When, he's, when they're setting up the Ghostbusters, Ray and Egon are excited about the prospects of what they're going to do. And Bill... <laughs> sorry... And Peter says the franchise rights alone, not even doing it, just the franchise rights, selling off the rights, will make us rich beyond our wildest dreams. I'm amazed he stuck around for Ghostbusters 2 as a character. <laughs> well, I've always seen him as he, he's kind of a con man, basically. And I wouldn't be surprised if the degree he got, uh, supposedly got, that allowed him to be at that university was completely forged. My God, he's he- Jeff Winger. Yeah, no, I'm sure yeah, it's, exactly. it's, a, it's a real. Uh, it's, it's real. It's probably just uh, he sent away for by post, and it came from the like the University of the well, Cakes or something. In the novelization, yeah, basically he copied um, or got Egon to do all of his work for him. 
<laughs> copied him or Egon wrote it for him. I thought you had a degree from Columbia. Yeah, and now I have to get one from America. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll come back to Peter repeatedly throughout the show, but it's interesting that of the three of uh, three of your four quotes at the beginning were all Murray. Yeah. <laughs> he just so many of the one-liners and catch, catchy comebacks and retorts and just little odd throwaway bits like when Ray says, this uh, meal here represents the last of the petty cash. And he pauses for a second and says, chew your food, okay? <laughs> Slowly. It, it makes it feel more like it's alive and actually happening because it's he's reacting to the situation rather than just going, well, it says in the script here that I'm supposed to say, hey. But anyway, yeah, Peter Venkman is the, um, it's a great way for, to, to start the film off. Because they don't bring in Winston until, uh, 45 minutes into the actual film. And it actually makes no sense. In a modern day film, Winston would be there from the very beginning to have shit explained to him. Yeah, Winston would be the audience, yeah. yeah. And that's what he was brought in for, but they, they mainly brought him in to explain the bigger shit to him. Um, but, you know, Murray's there to begin with as the, the cynic and the skeptic and the person who doesn't really believe in all this shit. And even when he sees it with his own two eyes, he doesn't take it seriously. Yeah, hence the, it's right here, Ray. It's looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the interesting thing, and Sharon noted this one. He's the first one to go up against Goza after uh, they, they decide on the crossing the streams thing. He actually goes, right, let's just do this thing. And he goes up there first. He doesn't, you know, you'd imagine someone like him would just be hiding and cowardly and just let everyone else do the work and, and put themselves in danger. He puts his life on the line first and foremost for the world. Which is quite funny considering leading up to that moment when they find the stairs, he goes to take the lead, the lightning sort of flashes, and then he sends everybody else first. Yeah. It shows think, that deep down he, he does have some courage. It's also that he used his, his, uh, gift of the gab, if you like, his patter is his defense mechanism. Mm. So, you know, uh, what he's doing there is just his, his instinctive reaction to any difficult situation, which is to try and talk himself out of it, which yeah. he does throughout the film. So. Immediately after we meet Peter, and he's um, uh, m- made the moves on this not-at-all-psychic girl, despite having dismissed a possibly somewhat psychic chap, because he guesses the wavy lines, and actually, um, was it? there's another one which he's, he's late on. She, she guesses a star, and it's a circle, and then the next one, he says a circle, because it's like he got the aftermath of the circle, psychically speaking. We meet Dan Aykroyd as Ray, the heart of the Ghostbusters and the heart of the film. If Ghostbusters has a central core character, it's Ray. While Murray may be the one everyone uh, remembers and thinks about, the lifeblood pumping through its veins is propelled by Dan Aykroyd and his genuine belief in the occult. Well, he's so excited mm. by all of this that you can't help but be swept up in his excitement yeah. as an audience member. Like, yeah, ghost, this is awesome, <laughs> you know. And and you want and and I felt, um, you know, throughout the film when things were starting to get bad, I felt like I felt really bad for him because what he must be going through at that moment because he was so excited to see all of this yeah. and then for everything to go to complete shit is just. Oh, okay. My dreams weren't as great as the reality, but yeah, he he definitely is the character. I think everyone, um, more so than Peter Venkman, he's the character that you really get attached to. Yeah, I'm actually far sadder to see him at the beginning of Ghostbusters Two when they're doing kids parties. 
Because that's like everything's dropped out of his world. Well, but Venkman's basically doing this as a skive because he figures he can get some easy. Well, he is getting some easy grant money to do yeah. this research and just avoid doing any real science and real work. Egon will just do whatever he he's basically asked to do because he just wants to nerd out and do science. He doesn't really care what he's doing. Ray's the only one who's really passionate about. Mm. ESP and, and psychic phenomenon and all the rest of it. He's the only one who really truly believes in it and, and is at all passionate about it. Everyone else is just there because they're not doing anything else. But he's so, such a kid about it. He's <laughs> so excitable. Also, that helps to make things not too scary for us because um, when uh, immediately after Peter gets slimed, a lot of other kids would be like, oh, God, no. Oh, this is too scary for me. But Ray's response is, Great! And uh, he's just so thrilled that there's things happen that you're like, oh, it's okay. Peter's going to be all right, even though the slamming happened. And that, and that is actually a creepy moment. And Lyra does hu- try, pretend, start off hiding her eyes, but can't pull them away at that point. Next up, we have Harold Ramis as Egon Spengler, the straight man, and also one of the funniest things in the film. Oh, yes. <laughs> because he doesn't get to be immediately outwardly uh, hilarious, especially not to the kids, but he's got so many great memorable lines delivered in a way that's I mean, not dissimilar to, I was going to say, to Kiff Croker in... Um, Futurama, voiced by Maurice LaMarche, who voiced Egon Spengler in the real Ghostbusters. Oh my god, it's the circle of life right there. <laughs> he just gets some excellent lines. Of, I collect more, was it? Spores, moths, fungus. fungus. I'm terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. And it's done in such a sort of deep, measured way. I also like to read a lot. Print is dead. And how right he was. He's <laughs> <laughs> just about two decades early. Yeah, he's just way ahead of his time. And that serves to make Ghostbusters more relevant now. I, I think um, having all these different characters um, also demonstrates uh, one of uh, Ghostbusters' biggest strengths is that it draws humour mm. from a lot of different places. It's not all madcap and you know crazy, and it's not all excitable. It's not all sarcastic. Yeah. You have these different characters who are uh, representing a different kind of comedic style, and that keeps the experience varied, and and it keeps it interesting on repeat uh, repeat viewings because of that. It's not all just this one type of humour. I think this building should be condemned. There's some serious mental fatigue in all the load-bearing members. The wiring is substandard. It's completely inadequate for our power needs, and the neighbourhood is like a demilitarized zone. Hey, does this pole still work? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wow, this place is great! And again, there's Ray with his childlike exuberance, probably adding thousands onto the price they could have paid for that place. <laughs> yeah, but well, I was never sure whether states. that was awesome. Everyone has three mortgages these days. 
I was never sure whether Egon was actually being sly and just trying to drive it because he kind of looks looks at at Peter and then just reels off this stuff and looks genuinely surprised and flabbergasted when Ray just goes for it I was never sure whether he was actually for once being a little bit uh, a little bit sly instead of just completely straight as he normally is or or whether he was just uh, actually the building is that bad (laughs) it's kind of odd because you know you would expect Vakeman to come in there and try and knock the price down not Egon well they they give up at that point because at the end of the day it's Ray's money you know so you know, they they see, you know, he comes running over and basically blows any kind of negotiating position they had. And uh, the, the, what can they do? You know, it's... The baby it's just... have his bottle. Exactly. It's almost like Ray would have bought that fire station with the money anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Again, they lived in a fire station. That is so cool. That is cool. It, it also, it of course, cool. adds to the idea of them being a public service. Yeah. It's almost like uh, the fire service has now become irrelevant in New York. Uh, but, uh, my god, ghosts suddenly relevant. But it also leads to the epic scene of the doors opening for the first time. Yeah. Oh, don't get too far. We're still in the library right now. They've only just come out of Weaver Hall. Okay, so back to the library. Ectoplasm and the big scare. Ectoplasm. Uh, this is a real life documented theory on, uh, ghosts touching, uh, the, uh, the physical plane and leaving behind a sticky residue. Disgusting. But does, did anyone, when they were a kid, have the purple ectoplasm with the toys? I had all the different... The trouble with that ectoplasm was, if you got it on carpet, it used to pick up the fuzz. Yep. Or jeans, it wouldn't come off the jeans. <laughs> yeah. Or if you smuggled what? it home in your sock because your mum said you weren't allowed anything <laughs> disgusting, then actually put your sock on like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. What do you think was going to happen? Alex. Was it about 80s toys all having slime, though? Because even they turtles did. had slime. Yeah. Especially Turtles Head Slime. But this, the Turtles Slime was way more runny. I remember yeah. um, I borrowed some, borrowed some slime from a friend at school. <laughs> and it Can ended I borrow up, a cup of slime? It ended up, it was a new pot and it ended up back in its pot and there was only half the amount. So I mixed in a bit of water and then a bit more water, shook it up and it was very runny after that. <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, it was like just giving someone back a key of cocaine, half cup with baking soda. Mm. There's some water in this. <laughs> The best thing with that slime was just if you had the fire station itself, you could pour it in the top mm-hmm. and it go through all the floors and you could slide. Oh, you could slide the Ghostbusters. Oh, that was awesome! I want a fire station again. There are kids right now going slime. <laughs> so just Google images uh, ectoplasm toy. Okay, uh, so yeah, the the ectoplasm, Egon, your mucus, that bit, and the the bit where Peter reacts to the slime is exactly what I do when I get slime on me and just toss it all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, and, and again, it's uh, uh, later on in the um, uh, after Slimer that yeah they, they call back to it. That's great, Ray, save some for me. Yeah, then the Ghostbusters encounter the proper library ghost, and you see her. Now, I will go back to what I previously stated. This old lady is really bloody scary to me. Yep. I'm not sure why, but the idea of an old lady quietly watching you uh, as a ghost is so much scarier than any kind of big demon-faced greebly thing which actually tries to scare you directly. I think now, watching it, uh, this weekend, it was it was very creepy, but I think that's logic because I know what happens next, and I know, you know, so that's why it's that sort of air of menace, <laughs> you know, it's something whole, horrible is going to turn up, and it's such a sweet old lady, it just kind of looks around and goes, 
and just carries on reading. And the shush is way too loud as well. Yeah. Hang on, she's way down there. That shush shouldn't have been that loud. That gives you a a slight preeminent sense of her awesome power. But then when the sort of get away, I mean, for, for a start, they, they, they ramp up the tension brilliantly by having them sort of like try to approach her and it doesn't work and then start and then there's wind blowing in their face like they're up against an ethereal plane while they're doing that and there's a sort of a soft pink light and if you actually uh, look carefully it was um uh, they filmed the old lady in reverse so when she reads the pages it's like the page is sort of guiding by her hand but going backwards so which is actually it, it sort of subliminally makes it very creepy um but the the bit when it sort of rears up and goes and they freak out now when i saw it in the cinema obviously scariest thing i'd ever seen but at the same time utterly thrilling which kind of underlines how well played that scene was because if it had just scared the shit out of me i'd have gone i don't like this anymore guys get me out of here but i was glued to the seat after that because it's like i don't know what could happen after this i think it's the only sort of genuine jump scare isn't it in the entire the entire film i don't know the bits with the hands in the chair um yeah well no i'm not expecting that that's uh, yeah, yeah but not, you know something's a, happening with that bit. It's yeah, not, it's not a massive jump scare because you know something's going to happen. What about, okay, who bought the dog? Bang! And then the terror dog jumps through from the closet. Again, I don't think it's it's not quite the same as this because you, the first time you see it, you just, you know, I'm not expecting that mm. to happen. And it's the fact that it just goes full on, full screen, very loud. Yeah. You know, and. It's the first yeah, one just, as well. Yeah, it makes you leap out of your seat. Yeah, I think after that you're expecting it. And interestingly the, enough, when she mentions it definitely had arms because it reached out to me. When I saw it on TV, I was like, I remember it having arms as well. Of course, I was watching it in pan and scan. Oh, yeah. And they had to take it out, so the arms out. So basically what you got was an old lady suddenly becoming a lot taller with a monkey head, but no arms at all. So that was that somewhat diminished it. So I didn't actually see the arms until the 1999 DVD of it was released. That is a long time to watch Ghostbusters. That's 15 years of watching Ghostbusters with the... You didn't get the widescreen video. The widescreen. No, I didn't. I I don't think that that was available until quite late. Mm. I I think I just had the TV uh, edit and just kept watching it over and over again. I had the the double one. It Mm -hmm. was Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, those were both widescreen. I I had those as well. But yeah, I think they were much later, Neil. I think the the very early ones were all pan and scan. Mm. Yeah. Uh, widescreen uh, videos didn't even happen until the early 90s with Dome no. 2 in the Abyss and Aliens it, yeah. um, but uh, I, mean, I wasn't a massive video collector I think when I started collecting videos it was only a few years off DVD anyway so I got this massive collection of videos and it's like right your collection's shit get rid of it <sighs> <laughs> okay so um, the big scare again extremely well played now does anyone know what the original face of this ghost was going to look like a cute puppy. No. I'll send you a picture. Has anyone ever... Shark seen... puppy. <laughs> oh, fuck. Jesus. Just looking at this thing. Oh, my God. How, how did they think they could get away with this in this show? Okay. Sending you a picture. Oh, God. Oh, That's not good. That. That, that definitely is, oh, yeah. Close window. Oh, oh, right. Isn't that from The Howling too? No, but you're close. It's Fright Night. Fright Night, the original. Yeah, this is Amy. They literally reused this face 
because it was too scary for Ghostbusters, they went and used it in Fright Night instead. And it was just about right for Fright Night. But my God, just seeing that. Like, if, if you want to make a small child wet itself, that's what you show them. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Jesus, just get it away. Ugh. Anyway, uh, so, so yeah, folks, just type, type into your Google images, Fright Night Amy, and that'll be the image you get. And that's what they were going to use for the library ghost. Fortunately, they went for this sort of monkey thing in the end, which is still scary, but enough of a, of a cartoonish effect for you to not be completely freaked out. And for both scares, you'll notice, they cut in after the librarian gets scared with the Ghostbusters theme, so you know it can't be that bad. Oh, by the way, it then immediately cuts to a statue, so you're like, ah, again, the eyes of the city. Uh, and then with this, it cuts to cleaning up the town, which they reprise later on. So basically, it's like, we scared you! And now on with the comedy, so that no one can really be too freaked out. And so so uh, when they run away from the library, it's joyful. It's not um, disturbing. Yeah, especially because I think when it cuts back to them, it's 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 um, Peter laughing. Yeah. Get her. That yeah. Was just idea, right? Get her. Yeah. They're, they're, they're exhilarated by the experience, but they're not disturbed by it. They're just, they're like, oh my god, we, we actually saw it, but I wasn't gonna hang around for it. It's here. A full torso apparition, and it's real. So what do we do? Could you come over here and talk to me for a second, please? Could you just come over here for a second, please? Right over here. Come here, Francine. Come here. What do we do? I don't know. What do you think? Stop that! We've got to make contact. One of us should actually try to speak to it. Good idea. Hello. I'm Peter. Where are you from? Originally. Shh. All right. Okay. The usual stuff isn't working. Okay. I have a plan. I know exactly what to do. Now stay close. Stay close. I know. Do exactly as I say. Get ready. Ready? Get her! Right, on the, the subject of the Ghostbusters theme, does anyone know what the uh, the contention was that it sounded way too much like? No. Yeah, you're close. There's Hewlett's in the news. Yeah, did anyone know the name of the song? I can't remember. It's called I Want a New Drug. Listen to it now. Yeah, it does. Jesus, it totally is. Do you know what it also reminds me of? No. Um, I don't know if you listened to the Turtles episode. Pizza Power. (laughs) (laughs) 
anyway, yeah, so uh, there was various court cases about that, and I think um, uh, Ray Parker Jr. was hauled over the coals for that, but still ended up a relatively rich man for this one song. So I don't, don't seem to remember him doing anything else. On the Elmer Bernstein score, he has a great range to the actual uh, themes because he can go from this kind of ethereal just so that you feel like, oh, there's some serious stuff happening here, but with a slight kind of invaders from space sort of 50s B-movie mentality to it as well. Uh, but also, um, he's got this kind of bouncy, which kind of reminds me of like the Three Stooges type, like, you know, oh, what are the boys going to get themselves into next time? I mean, talking about the, the score, I mean, I did have, uh, and I still do have actually, uh, the, uh, the album, which, mm-hmm. um, I, I, that was one of the first things I bought as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it does have, um, quite an eclectic, but, also very memorable, you know, collection of, of tracks, which yeah. even some uh, slightly bad British songs on there as well, like the Thompson Twins. Yeah, there's a couple, there's too many pop songs and not enough score in that. This was um, standard for uh, soundtracks yeah. in those days. Yeah there's, there's, yeah, there's at least one which is so briefly in the movie, uh, I can't remember which one it was now. playing on someone's Walkman, yeah, maybe, it out of Weaver Hall. Yeah. yeah. I think it even might be the Thompson Twins. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, the two that I really like are, are Magic, which is um, yes. later on when the Ghosts were released. Yeah, I've, we'll talk about I've, that scene. Uh, yeah, that I've bit. always loved that piece of music. Me um, too, yeah. Saving reason. the day, come on. That and saving the, the day. day. We'll clean up the town, yeah. And saving the day, yeah. yeah. Those, those, those and Ghostbusters are awesome. There was a Laura, Laura Branigan song in there. It's gonna be a hot night. Oh, that's the party. From Lewis's party, yeah. <laughs> which is less relevant to the film than a bit more of Elmer Bernstein's score. We only got two tracks. One... Mm. Um, uh, on just sort of the general Ghostbusters bouncy theme, and one on from Dana, sort of yeah. uh, uh, romantic type stuff. Um, so yeah, you know what? Let's let's go to Sigourney Weaver as Dana Barrett, actually. I was watching the commentaries over the uh, weekend, and somebody mentioned, you know, this this beautiful woman in my office came in and acted like a dog, because that's how she got the uh, part, and she'd been in Alien 1, but not Aliens, and I'd never realised it before, but Sigourney Weaver, in this specifically, is beautiful. And I didn't realise it, because she's just such a sort of an Amazonian, um, like, sort of a hard-looking woman with that sort of set jaw all the time. And it's it's hard to really see her as as, as beautiful as Ripley. And I just... Most of the other things I've seen her in are things like... Was she in the Bonfire of Vanities? I think so. And she's working girl and things like that. All the sort of yuppie type stuff. She normally plays quite a hard-nosed, confident character, yeah. But in this, even though she's kind of hard-nosed as Dana as well, there's many, many times when she's just got this wonderful, beautiful profile and so this 
It's not and it is classically statuesque beautiful. This is a line from Greg Kinnear in As Good As It Gets. He's talking about Helen Hunt at the time. You're why cavemen painted on walls. And if you look at Sigourney Weaver in this, despite the fact that she has very 80s hair and is cheesecloth a lot of the time yeah. <laughs> and during the direction, she really is luminous. And uh, she acts with total conviction. That's the other thing. She, to her, you, you completely believe that Dana is telling the truth. And shes it's almost like she's channeling how Ripley ends up acting in Aliens, where people aren't believing her about the, the, the xenomorph from there. It's like, sorry, did IQ just drop while I was away? She's got this kind of, you know, you're not listening to me. This thing actually happened. You're supposed to be concerned about this. And, and like I said, it's, it's her conviction that really sells the loopiness of her apartment. Well, I, I was just going to comment on the, the sequence in her apartment where things just go crazy. I think having the eggs suddenly explode and mm. fry on the table, like that would, to me, was more unsettling than like opening the fridge and going into that world because just having like these everyday objects act in the most alien and peculiar way yeah. uh, was freaky it's just really i think that that i I don't know what it is but i think there's something about human psychology where you can show somebody something completely crazy and it doesn't affect you that Mm. much but if you take something that's just ordinary just normal just simple and just slightly you know slightly uh twist it slightly Mm. make it slightly unsettling give a dog human eyes yeah exactly that it just it's so impactful it's so creepy or and human dog eyes and and because i think they i don't know how they did it because i'm assuming it's practical effects they're doing with those eggs because it's it they, they, it's real. a heated uh, top it, it it's just literally uh, it heats up and it's a grill however I don't get how the cardboard doesn't burst into flames and the yeah. plastic packaging of the stape off marshmallows doesn't melt yeah it's probably not cardboard and plastic or there's something underneath it to stop that idiot. happening of course yeah. <laughs> but it looks like it yeah. it's again really effective very clever um practical effects i'm not I'm, I'm not quite sure how they managed to get the eggs to sort of burst out though mm. probably squids yeah but i mean they they look like actual eggs the way they break but oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're not actually breaking them so unless they're sort of half an eggshell and they're basically I know compressed air again. Maybe I'm not. I don't, I don't quite get how they made it happen because it looks like somebody's just crushed an egg in their hand, but there's no hand. So it's, mm. yeah, again, very very good practical effects. And yes, it is creepy as hell. Yeah, <laughs> very unsettling to see it happen. Again, as with the library uh, situation at the beginning, it preys on your sense of uh, paranoia when you're alone, when you're very much alone in a house. And uh, specifically if there's no music on and nothing happening, the silence becomes very loud. Now, depending on what kind of person you are, a lot of people are very happy like that, but I I tend to want to be busy all the time. But yeah, actually, another film that does that extremely well is The Sixth Sense, which takes completely the opposite view on ghosts. And we also, when we meet Dana, we are introduced to uh, Lewis Tully, Rick Moranis. Uh, anyone know who this uh, role was originally going to go to? John Candy. John Candy, and that, another man who went on to uh, to become a ghost himself. Um, he was trying to play it as a German man with Alsatian dogs. 
Schnauzers. Schnauzers. But they said there's too many dogs in this movie, people are going to get confused. And in the end, he couldn't do it. So they brought in this fresh-faced young Canadian guy who went on to be Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors. And uh, he played him as a, as a geek here. But I think the, the interesting thing about... Um, I can't, I can't say interesting. Hang on. The telling thing about Lewis is how easily distracted he actually is and how uh, uh, obsessed with minutia he is. He, he starts dancing with this girl and then immediately goes to answer the door um, at, at his party that he's not really going to commit to any one thing. He also, considering he's the future key master, gets locked out three times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might need a different guy to be key master yeah. at this point. <laughs> But that's Worst the thing, yeah, she's, she's terrifying. He's silly when, uh, when he gets possessed. He's, it's, it's a, it's a great way of uh, making sure that the kids don't get too scared. Again, the, the, the key master, even with the glowing eyes and the growling and the drooling, um, he's hilarious. Are you the gatekeeper? You better bring him inside. You are so kind to take care of that man. You know, you are a real humanitarian. I don't think he's human. What did you say your name was? Vince Clortho, key master of Gozer. According to this, his name's Lewis Tully. Lives on Central Park West. Do you want some uh, coffee, Mr. Tully? Do I? Yes, have some. Yes, have some. Vince, you said before you were waiting for a sign. What sign are you waiting for? Gozer the Traveler. He will come in one of the pre-chosen forms. During the rectification of the Valdrani, the Traveler came as a large and moving torb. Then, during the third reconciliation of the last of the McKetrick supplicants, they chose a new form for him. That of a giant slore. Many shubs and zools knew what it was to be roasted in the depths of the slore that day, I can tell you. It's very funny. I mean, it, it, I, I find Rick Moranis can be a, a bit too much. I, I, sometimes I find him far too much himself to be funny but in this it's, it's pretty much perfect the way he does everything I mean that whole party scene mm. was taken in one take and basically he was ad-libbing the entire way around yeah. which is why it seems like he's dying back and forth like he's got ADHD and can't sell on one thing because he's just as he thinks of something he moves over and says it to keep it going and it works fantastically and you could take his portrayal of geekery as like oh my god it's like they're just making fun of nerds but there's Egon, front and centre, showing that nerds can save the world. I was just saying, Rick Moranis, this is probably... <clears throat> there's only one role I like in him more than this. All right. Which is Darth Helmet. Darth <laughs> 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 No, sir, I didn't see you playing with your dolls again. Interesting, that actually wasn't a quote from Helmet, that was a quote from Sanders, but I was just thinking about Helmet's... Um, but, but it's how he plays that scene. When he's whole clutching his dolls to him <laughs> and staring behind him. <laughs> I don't find fate Spaceballs funny, but I could quote it forever. Oh, I fucking love it. <laughs> oh, it's shit, but I love it. And it has John Candy in it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm my own best friend. Will we do a Gonzo on Spaceballs? I think there are much better Mel Brooks movies to do a Gonzo on. Yes, Young Frankenstein. Anyway, um, so the advert. Pay attention when you uh, watch it next. Egon looks down before he steps forward to uh, to check his mark. They purposefully made it seem like a really crappy, unprofessional, one-take, significantly uh, local commercial. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, it's that, that whole... Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? We're, We're ready, ready to, to believe, believe you. you. 
<laughs> they do make that apartment building also look sinister. Mm. Um, mm. I, was, I was reading earlier today that it, it, it's actually a genuine building, but the top yeah, I've been to is it. totally different. Yeah, yeah, yeah they added that. a bit on top for composite. But it's the bit on top that makes it look like this sort of, you know, uh, pagan temple. You know, it's it it. it it, it does give you a complete sense of foreboding, and it's got the, as you said, it's got the gargoyles, obviously the, the doggy things on the top, you know. So and every time you see a wide shot of it, it goes. It just looks out of place, doesn't it? It looks like this giant gothic yeah. tower. Like no top. one in New York's gone. Hang on a second, yeah. that thing looks terrifying. It's like Dracula's castle. Yeah, I mean, they could have gone too far with it and made it look like something from the monsters, but, you know, it, I think it, <laughs> it, it it does successfully look like a, the sort of building that would have a darker mm. history. You know? It could have been designed in, like, the 20s or 30s, as they yeah. say, uh, and people would have just gone, yeah, that's fine, it's part of the Art Deco scene. Yeah. So I, I think, think that's that successfully, you know, gives you the sense that not everything is quite right there anyway they put a little piece on top of the the awning at the uh, front of the building to make it sort of that sort of jaggedy like sort of it's almost like something like lord of the rings uh, that wasn't there originally but they make that sort of mirror the rooftop on the uh, the awning i can attest that bit wasn't there when i saw it in 98 <laughs> some friends of mine went to see the ghostbusters fire station i don't know what the flip i was doing during that day but i didn't go and see the fire station and now i kick myself a thousand times you had obviously taken your stupid pills that morning. I had. I think I went shopping in Virgin Megastore and bought the This Is Spinal Tap soundtrack. Something <laughs> I could have done in England. True, <laughs> but This Is Spinal Tap soundtrack is bloody awesome. Let me tell you what other things I did uh, in New York. <laughs> Can I just point out, Alex, I have been and seen the Ghostbusters fire station. Do jammy shit! <laughs> That wasn't jammy shit. I thought, I'm going to go and see the, where is it? And I went and looked for it, and I found it. Okay. Just made sure I went past it. Let me tell you what else I did in New York. <laughs> was was the neighbourhood like a demilitarised zone? It, no, it was just like Manhattan, really. So, <laughs> so it was like a demilitarised zone. <laughs> the firemen and I were quite friendly. No, it was like a militarised so. zone. <laughs> Other things I did while I was in New York, I saw Lost in Space. Everybody points to laugh at Alex. Laugh it up. The I most saw, expensive shit movie you've ever seen. I saw the big hit, and I lost my cherry. Fair play. <laughs> you took an actual cherry. Did you just drop a cherry and went, "Oh, I've lost"? Oh, my I'm last not going to go into it, but no, <laughs> it's my metaphorical cherry. But the um, the, the the big hit. God, I wouldn't watch that for three seconds now if it was on TV. It's the, one of the worst films ever. It's a low-budget version of Pain and Gain, the other Mark Wahlberg horrible film that's just recently come out. Things I did in New York, went up to the top of the Empire State Building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did saw that. the Ghostbusters thing, went to Staten Island on the ferry and took photos of the Statue of Liberty. All oh. that stuff is what I did. I also went to the Statue of Liberty in Staten Island. I, I, I went to that restaurant where uh, um, Lewis ends up being chased by the terror dog, and I hammered on the windows and went, Let me and the concierge did this at me. <laughs> Do you remember every day that happens? Apparently, yeah. I was tempted, but there was some kind of event going on. There was people fucking everywhere, so I didn't go near it. It's the equivalent of going into the fudge kitchen and going, "Did you pack that fudge yourself?" <laughs> Your fudge packer. So yeah, it had the uh, the same kind of. Yep, <clears throat> well done, sir. No one's ever done that before today. Yeah, going on. Back to Dana's kitchen. Stay puffed. Trifecta. 
This is the first appearance of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Look very, very closely, uh, and uh, he's on the uh, packet of Stay Puft Marshmallows, which, by the way, and I didn't find this out until way later, did not exist. Yep. They made it look... They, they, they gave us some sort of brand recognition throughout the film, so you felt like Stay Puft Marshmallow Man was actually a thing. Of course, when I was a kid, I never noticed that either of these two uh, ones coming up, and I didn't realize that Stay Puft wasn't a brand. But then again, it was America. They could have had a million brands that they, they name-checked then that actually did exist that I wouldn't have known about. Like, I always assumed it was a real brand, but yeah. uh, kind of disappointed about it. It wasn't really. Yeah, It is now, sort of. OCP, Omni Consumer Products, made some extremely expensive but delicious marshmallows in the Stay Puft brand. Collectible marshmallows. <laughs> but does anyone know what the second appearance is before, obviously, his third appearance is in person? Billboard, isn't there? Yes. When the uh, the ecto-containment unit gets shut off and the uh, light explodes out of the top of the fire station, it cuts to a wide shot and he's there on a billboard, just hammering at home. Okay, so... The, the inside of Dana's uh, fridge is actually really quite eerie and creepy. I'll, I'll mention this as well because the, the, the idea of the, this sort of a, this other dimension being in there and sort of being mostly clouds and, and, and with, with some architecture and, and, and demons and things with that music playing, it's, it's like, again, with his Yamaha, um, Elmer's kind of touching the spiritual plane as much as they could in the eighties. There's certain keys you can hit like F-sharp, which kind of have an otherworldly ethereal sense to them. That, uh, oh, hang on, F-sharp is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in or around those two, approximately. F-sharp. <laughs> <laughs> We're also learning that What's I cannot carry the a fuck? <laughs> well, that, I can carry an F-sharp tune because... <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> this is what a nervous breakdown sounds like, listeners. Alex is having one as we speak. <laughs> anyway, I'm just getting to the moment, but but yeah, there's certain soundtracks which I'm not dissimilar to Dan Aykroyd in that. Uh, not that I believe devoutly in all that sort of stuff, but I'm fascinated by it. And the idea of of just brushing against the plane between realities is of extreme fascination to me. Annie Potts, as Janine Melnitz, moving swiftly on. Uh, some much-needed cynicism. <laughs> Otherwise, perfectly uh, enthusiastic film. She's very good. As we said, I, I never really appreciated how how good she was in this role until I watched it as, as an adult, really. Because she's kind of not really at the forefront of things. Um, but the way she does that, this just really sarcastic, just deadpan doesn't give a shit about anything she's just mm. doing the job delivery it's, it's uh, yeah it's so much funnier as an adult than it was as ever was as a kid they made her so much more ditzy in the real Ghostbusters yes with that punk hair uh, and she does get the great line later on with the Ghostbusters what do you want Ghostbusters what do you want her best <laughs> line is do you believe in UFOs astral projection mental telepathy ESP clairvoyance spirit photography telekinetic movements full trance mediums the Loch Ness monster and the theory of Atlantis if there's a steady paycheck involved <laughs> I believe in all those things <laughs> <laughs> yes the, it's it's that little speech where she's like, you know, these guys talk about it all the time. I've seen the ghosts coming in and out, but nothing surprises me. All I know is I've been working all week and I haven't had a break. I mean, effectively, she's kind of the, the, the conduit between Ghostbusters and people. So they should pay her a lot more and treat her with a lot more respect than they actually do. 
because they could be losing jobs left, right, and centre because she's pissed off. But then again, it's not like you can just go, we'll just get some other Ghostbusters to deal with these because they are literally the only ones. It would, be, it would have been interesting for Ghostbusters 3 had there been competing franchises. Which always was one of the ideas, and I quite like the other yeah. one of Ghostbusters go to hell. Yeah. Which I think they actually did in real Ghostbusters. Yeah. There was also a Spectre Detectors uh, rival firm in uh, real Ghostbusters. Yeah. Kind of a big fan of, uh, of that, that cartoon. We'll, we'll come back in for that next week. Um However, Janine also gets to deliver one of the most immortal lines, possibly just because the trailer had it and very specifically uh, played it. And it's another joyful moment. It's you do, you have, and then we got one. And it's just such a straightforward, everyone to action, man the pumps. And suddenly, and then they, and they're playing um, the busboys cleaning up the town. And I just assumed until I really listened to it that that was just some sort of, previous like bit of uh, like Motown jazz music but they it's a Ghostbusters song it literally sings about Ghostbusters they had it made yeah. for the film again joyful and you get to see Ecto-1 properly because obviously you get the to see epic it. opening and when like, when it came out the doors Lara went they painted it white <laughs> well it's kind of funny because it's referred to as the ambulance the original idea was it wasn't meant to be an ambulance it was a hearse, wasn't it? yes it was meant to be a hearse but yeah. I think they, I don't think they could find one of the one they had they had problems with yeah so Aykroyd just went and got on because the other thing Aykroyd is is a massive petrol head yeah, he, he's well into his, his cars. Have, have also, it's originally supposed to be painted black, but because there was most of the scenes it was in would be at night, they decided to paint it white because otherwise you wouldn't be able to see it. Yeah, a white makes it totally iconic. The white and the red with the, mm. uh, the that specific siren. It's oh, there are few cars in films as iconic as this. The the time machine from Back to the Future. What about what else we got? Car Mustang from Bullet. Uh, even that, you couldn't show that to a kid and say, what's no, that from? No, I, th- I think you, you don't get more iconic than XL1. Yeah. 
You could probably do it. The general Lee, if you include in TV as well. I think the James Bond Lotus and the Aston yeah. Martin are pretty iconic. Very true, yeah. Funnily enough. Uh, could you show that to a kid? Mm, not I so much. Think, I, I think so, yeah. Totally. Uh, it depends how old they are, but the point is, iconic doesn't mean kids recognise it. It means people recognise it. People who haven't even seen Bullet know the car. Yeah. People from that, that point in time, it's still, a, it's still an iconic motor. It just happens to be a real one, is the only difference. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Ecto-1, in terms of, of cars from this kind of film, Ecto-1 and, and the, the DeLorean are really the, the only two yeah. that, uh, that are that you can also recognise them as that you know so with the General Lee you can only recognise that by the, the also it's, it, it, I love the fact we actually see it it, it builds up to that moment really well because you sort of see Ray turn up with it and it's a it's a clapped out <laughs> mess it's a crap, yeah. and then he's he's working on it and then all of a sudden this car comes out and you're like there's no way that was the, the car he turned up with because it's pristine and gorgeous and it's got that distinctive siren as well it's important for us to mention the Ghostbusters before we move on. Anyone know about this? This is was this the live action TV series which was set uh, which was on telly in the seventies or something? The one. Larry Storch, Forrest Tucker, and Bob Burns. There's a gorilla in it. And there's also a sequel. There, there was a filmation series. The people who made uh, uh, the He Man uh, show, and uh, uh, only fifteen episodes were ever created of the Ghostbusters. <laughs> We're the Ghostbusters. I'm Spencer. He's Tracy. I'm Kong. We're the Ghostbusters. We're clever, courageous, and strong. Your sleep has been haunted with whispers and rattlings. Your blood has been curdled. We know what to do. Your skin has the creepies. I wonder what's happening. You're safe in our hands. We'll take care of you. We're the Ghostbusters. Spirits and demons. So let's get this one cleared up because there's a lot of people uh, are talking about how uh, Ghostbusters is a reboot of this. Ghostbusters is in no way related to the Ghost Busters TV show from 1975. 13 episodes, uh, two men and a giant gorilla. Looking very much more like Mr. Bolo from The Mighty Boosh. Ten years passed. Then there was the Ghostbusters movie, which was incredibly popular, but in no way related to this. Uh, then, Filmation jumped on the case, and because of the sudden popularity of the Ghostbusters movie, they rebooted their Ghostbusters TV franchise as a cartoon a very similar animation style to He-Man in 1986 just after the Ghostbusters came out to coincide with the real Ghostbusters TV show which had to be called the real Ghostbusters because it was the Ghostbusters that everyone knew confusing especially to a bunch of ignoramuses on YouTube complaining that Ivan Reitman and company in rebooting Ghostbusters completely changed it and that the original is far better than Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis in boiler suits. But really, they're as unrelated as Hogan's Heroes and Stripes. It's just a name. There was no rebooting, aside from Filmation rebooting a dead TV show that nobody liked at the time. To capitalise on the real Ghostbusters. Put it this way, if there had been as much love for Spies Like Us, starring Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, then suddenly I Spy would have been brought back to the TV in cartoon form. Uh, I have actually yeah. seen the the other one, or yeah. parts of Any uh, good? the animated one. 
it's no <laughs> really <laughs> the reason I, so I can explain this the reason i saw it we had a i think it was hollywood video yeah and i saw this thing that said ghostbusters so naturally naturally being the child that i was i thought it was the real ghostbusters and much of my shock and surprise when it was not the real ghostbusters but this weird thing with a flying car a gorilla and two men was it the live action one or the animated no, one? No, it was the animated Oh, okay. Um, I kind of want to track that down and see if it was as bad as I remember it was. There were various legal disputes back and forth, um, but uh, ultimately the the, re- the the one that made a kajillion dollars won out and became the recognisable face of the term Ghostbusters. Uh, there was also Spookbusters. Anyone know this? No, that one I don't know. It's a 1946 film starring uh, the comedy team of the Bowery Boys, now long forgotten by most people. Um, it, it's uh, pretty much the same scenario of a bunch of guys set up shop as spectral, effectively waste disposal men. And it was it was just done for a bit of fun. It wasn't done with anywhere near the anywhere near the scope of uh, Ghostbusters. But uh, yeah, it's just just important to know that there were others that, that attempted this, just didn't in any way near succeed. And if you think about it, there, there aren't any. There's uh, since Ghostbusters, there have not been anybody attempting this concept. The closest you're really going to get are things like Men in Black and Hellboy, which deal with aliens and um, supernatural phenomena in general. Uh, I always like the uh, quote that came out when the Social Network was popular. Yeah. Because everyone referred to, what was it, Ghostbusters, the most successful movie about a startup company ever. Because <laughs> nice. it essentially is. Yeah. Actually, now that I mention it, Hellboy does really ca- carry much of the spirit of this onwards. And if, if uh, Ghostbusters was sort of a secret government organisation, it would be the VPRD. Hmm. I mean, how big could it be? How there is no it? such organisation. VPRD headquarters. What are you supposed to be, some kind of a cosmonaut? <laughs> No, we're exterminators. Somebody saw a cockroach up on 12. That's got to be some cockroach. Bite your head off, man. Going up. I'll take the next one. Okay, so does anyone know how the particle accelerators work on their backs, the proton packs? They're nuclear, that's all I... (laughs) (laughs) Every one of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on their back. Oh, dear. Just thought you'd get in there first. (laughs) I read up on the science, and then I read it again, and then I tried to write it out in simple terms. The theory is ghosts occupy the bits in between the positive parts of the atom. So, when the Big Bang occurred, there was... Oh, this is... Physicists are going to be smacking their heads. Am I going to get a headache again? Yep. This is a, I knew you'd complain about this, but... Um, when the Big Bang occurred, everything became either matter or antimatter. And if you go to... Uh, I think Dan Aykroyd said this one, that, that, that every atom itself may not... It may seem solid, but it's effectively all sort of... It is vibrating so fast so as to feel solid, but it's actually, um, there's a huge amount of empty space in every atom as well. The ghosts occupy that empty space. The um, particle throwers throw positively charged beams upwards and outwards, which latch on as like the positive side of a magnet to the negative side of the ghost's 
makeup. So basically, in effect, what the Ghostbusters are doing are throwing out a fishing line with a magnet on the end and then trying to wrangle the ghost towards the trap, which doesn't... You've said that in the first place. I can follow that. Fishing line magnet. Like putting too much air in a balloon. That's... I, I, I was trying to point out that there was some actual genuine grounding of, of uh, uh, science behind it, but Ackroyd himself has said that if you if you could actually develop this thing, it would cost trillions of dollars, <laughs> and its its actual monetary applications would be fairly low. And Except for everyone pool. that tried to carry it. Yeah, it's not dissimilar to a collider of some kind, some sort of super collider. Yes. The one that's city-sized in Switzerland. <laughs> Not backpack-sized. That's the thing about it. When they throw out those particle beams with their neutrino ones, they're fishing. They're not blasting aggressively. It may seem like they're causing all this, this kind of devastation, but there there is a, an element of chance about the whole thing, and they're sort of trying their luck to try to get the ghosts. It's, it's not like a straight laser beam. They're not just firing at the ghost to destroy it. It's wrangling a ghost. You're trying to lasso it. Yeah, they're like cowboys. Mm-hmm. So it's it's wonderful imagery there. You know, it's just occurred to me we really haven't had a completely successful test of this equipment. I blame myself. So do I. Well, no sense worrying about it now. Why worry? Each of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back. Yep. Let's get ready. Switch me on. When they blow up that poor maid's cart... <laughs> nobody said to the poor actress this is what's going to happen it's going to be quite big your eyes. so that what the hell are you doing was genuine <laughs> somebody had a chat with Ridley Scott before filming this <laughs> film then blew up a cow full of offal on her <laughs> Just but it works that scene is so brilliant yeah. Yeah. Well, for a start, it gives you an idea of the awesome power they're carrying before a ghost turns up. Mm. And also how they are barely in control of this awesome power, which gives <laughs> the wonderful tension. Because they don't know what's going to happen. They've not tried them out. I think we're, we're, barely in control is possibly overstating things. <laughs> they're not even vaguely in control of this, let's yeah. be honest. Well, there's that wonderful scene where they turn on the backpack for the first time and you hear that really uncomfortable buzzing noise and they all back off like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, but I love that sound. Yeah, yeah. it is it's awesome. A, it's actually. an iconic sound, isn't it's it? It's kind of like the DeLorean sort of, the DeLorean powering up or its doors opening or the time circuits. Again, that sort of, that, that wonderful. The 80s really was, and, and our uh, best 50 films list has shown the hotbed of fantastically creative, wonderful films that suddenly came out of nowhere. Uh, and yes, yeah, so that, yeah, you get the, the wonderful Slimer scene. Uh, again, totally iconic and, uh, it, Enough to just make you a little bit weirded out if you're a kid. You're like, oh, what's that thing? Because it's the first time you've actually seen a ghost properly standing, staying still for a few uh, moments because obviously the library ghost didn't play ball. And this is one that they could possibly go for. And he's not, you know, if you know Slimer, he's not the least bit threatening. Uh, we should call him at this point really the green ghost because they didn't know he was going to be as huge as he was or become almost like a him- mascot of the series. Originally called him Onion Head. Yeah, yeah. It was only in, uh, I think it was Ghostbusters 2, they called, uh, in the cartoon after Ghostbusters 2, they called him Slimer. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh, no, hang on, the cartoon was before Ghostbusters 2. It's in the cartoon he's called Slimer. Yeah, and then in Ghostbusters 2, they had, they had to 
I don't know if they actually called him Slimer in Ghostbusters 2, but they... Don't they actually call him by name, but he's around the place, and they're not like... He's not... He's just hanging around the Ghostbusters by that point. They never refer to him or act like they do in the the real Ghostbusters, but yeah, he's, he's not there. a main character. And he obviously helps out in sort of the final a little bit, which is quite funny. Yeah. Okay. So, um, they, yeah, they... they uh, first off, um, Slimer sliming Peter... Uh, like I said, extremely unnerving when you're watching it for the first time as a child. Oh my god, what's gonna happen? Oh no, 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 no. But then he slimed me. It's like this sort of, ah, oh, it's funny, uh, straight after that. So it's like, um, again, they're working brilliantly with, with tension and humor and tension and humor. It's like a reverse horror movie where they go tension, tension. I suppose actually it's exactly like a horror movie, only that the, the humor tends to be derived from the horrible amounts of splatter that it's. No, no it, it does work on the same principles as a horror movie. They just go for a different payoff. Yeah, the payoff is the comedy, whereas a horror movie, the payoff sometimes is is the is the kill or something. Yeah. So it's actually a really good because done a different way. Ghostbusters is a really bloody scary film. Eggman, mm. Eggman. Disgusting blob. I'm gonna have to hold it myself. It's right here, Ray. It's looking at me. He's an ugly little spud, isn't he? I think he can hear you, Ray. Don't move. It won't hurt you. Can you move? Ray, Ray, come in, please. I feel so funky. Spangler, I'm with Bankman. Oh. You got slime. That's great, Ray. Save some for me. You'll notice that the green ghost feeds his face um, all the time, but when he actually drinks, I think it's a beer later on in the uh, in the dining room, it goes right through him, which implies that it's that all the food is doing that too, or he's just eating it like Cookie Monster. He's going, ung, 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 and it's flying I think out it, of his I mouth. I think you actually do see it go through, the food go through him as well. Yeah. But. So it's like he's just, he's compulsive beyond the grave, but he's not actually gaining any kind of sustenance from this. Given who that ghost is meant to be as well. Yeah, it's supposed to, it's basically, it's, um... Bluto. Bluto, yeah. yeah. It's just eating, it's eating, a, eating, eating from it's, it's John as well, so... So that's, that's, a, that's a nice, sweet little love letter from uh, uh, one partner to another from beyond the grave. Mr. Smith, quickly, I want that door open now. Don, stand over there. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. Did you see it? What is it? We got it! What is it? Will there be any more of them? <coughs> Sir, what you had there was what we refer to as a focused, non-terminal repeating phantasm or a class 5 full-roaming vapor. Real nasty one, too. And now... <coughs> Let's talk seriously. Now, for the entrapment, we're going to have to ask you for four big ones, $4,000 for that. But we are having a special this week on proton charging, 
and storage of the beast, and that's only going to come to $1,000, fortunately. $5,000? I had no idea to be so much. I won't pay it. Well, that's right. We can just put it right back in there. Thank oh, you. Oh, we certainly can, no, Dr. Beckman. No, no, no. All right. Anything. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hope we can help you again. Coming through one class five. And this is really the uh, the, the perfect example of uh, the uh, catch and trap operation. So that then during the montage, you don't really need to see them do much more. It's just they've, they've already given you proof of concept. This is what the Ghostbusters do. This is how an operation should run perfectly. And then they feel free to uh, to charge $5,000 because literally no one else can do what they do. Although doesn't Winston say something on the lines of this job is definitely not worth eleven five a year, which to me suggests they're not paying him enough. <laughs> Even adjusted for inflation, that's a shitty wage. Yeah, but how big is their electric bill? Yeah, bear in mind, they have got a lot of overheads to cover. The mortgages alone. <laughs> that's true. Uh, although they probably could have got a better rate had Ray not screwed. <laughs> And also they probably need to pay off a lot of government officials after the Walter Peck incident. Uh, so you get the montage in there and they're going through that, which again adds wonderful flavour to the actual uh, uh, event. And it, it, well, yeah, exactly. It makes it feel like an event movie. Now this being set in New York is very significant because it means they were actually driving around and they were known from Saturday Night Live. They were sort of ingratiating themselves upon the people in New York and they'd, they'd go and eat in costume and they'd drive around in the Ecto-1 and like the, the bits where they were filming at Rockefeller Plaza, they didn't ask any planning permission. They just sort of pulled up and then got the camera and then just guerrilla filmmaking charged down there with a, sw- a smoking trap and just those people looking at them are looking for real they're not extras uh, so yeah you get the, the, the little um, shots from Time Magazine they actually uh, they did this with Iron Man if you remember at the beginning of uh, uh, the, the first movie to, you get lots of shots of Tony Stark on magazines which makes you feel more like uh, it's part of a, the real world and then we cut to uh, Ernie Hud. hang on before we cut that really probably shouldn't be in the film and actually if they made it today they really definitely wouldn't put it in there oh you're talking about blowjob guys in the TV version <laughs> of course they cut it out because it's like we can't show this to kids Ray gets a blowjob <laughs> from a ghost Lyra <laughs> laughs her bottom off at that moment because he goes all cross-eyed she doesn't get that he's basically being sucked off by a ghost yes. <laughs> or at least dreaming dream- about it he's dreaming about it yeah Although later on in Ghostbusters 2, there's that bit where it's like, you slept with it? We go in the ectoplasm. Oh, yeah. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> then we get to uh, meet uh, Winston Zedmore. The, uh, like I said before, he's the, uh, he, he's been described in the, in the comic as the heart of the Ghostbusters and Ray was described as the hands. I think Ray is the heart and uh, Winston's actually like the conscience or the ability to actually relate to real people because he's... I say that, but going back to these films... They don't really do anything with Winston. Not really, no. He's not re- there's not really much of a character there apart from the excellent part in two. But we'll get to that. Yeah, as I say, he's, he's, he's more he's he's a much, much bigger character in two. Mm. You, you know. I think I think when you guys said earlier that in this film he's almost he's almost used as a as a device on which to hang exposition. Not yeah. even almost. He was literally there for that. Yeah, exactly. Well, originally he was going to be played by... Uh, that was the part written for Eddie Murphy, which is going to be right from the beginning. It was yeah. A lot more, but when uh, Eddie Murphy uh, didn't didn't sign on, obviously he went to do... Beverly was cop instead of me. Um, they, they rewrote it and, and wrote it for Eddie Hudson. Instead, obviously reduced the part, basically because, because it wasn't Eddie Murphy, basically. Yeah. I, I don't know what that would be like. Eddie Murphy and Bill Murray both trying to hog the scene at the same time. 
Well, they both do. So they're both so good at improvising and just yeah, you know, ad libbing dialogue uh, to great effect that it would uh, possibly wouldn't it, would have uh, had a, a negative they'd, effect. Yeah, they'd have underwritten the other two characters, mm. so Ray and Egon would have had less scenes. And I love Dan Aykroyd. Dan, if you're listening, I adore your enthusiasm and your adherence to this series. My sister actually got to interview him. Just, just why? She was, was talking she to him. Wine, wasn't she? She was talking to him about his crystal skull vodka. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think she even asked jealousy going on here. Now. I think she even asked him about Ghostbusters three, and she mentioned that I uh, I love. In fact, she got me an autograph. Bless her. <laughs> but. Uh, oh. Yeah, no, I, I adore Dan Aykroyd. And in this, as especially one of my other f- absolute favourite films, Gross Point Blank, he's brilliant in that as the exact reverse of Ray. The following are excerpts from my sister Lucy Shaw's interview with Dan Aykroyd for The Drinks Business. If you want to see the whole thing, just go to YouTube and type in Dan Aykroyd and Lucy Shaw. This is DBTV. Um, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Hollywood actor Dan Aykroyd, probably most famous for his roles in uh, Ghostbusters and the Blues Brothers. And uh, we are here at the Stafford Hotel in London because uh, Dan's been here for the launch of his Crystal Head Vodka. So, Dan, welcome. Thank you. Happy Valentine's Day. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and um, so, uh, we haven't got a bottle, actually. Maybe we can get one of those, but it's, um, it's a very specific product. Um, how did the idea come about? Uh, well, it was a sort of parallel track of thinking. Um, my friend John Alexander, the portraitist and landscape painter from America, uh, was talking with me about uh, beverage alcohol and wines and tequila, and he said he always wanted to do a beverage alcohol in a skull bottle. Uh-huh. And uh, and it was a February night in his studio in New York, and I said, well, you know, draw that up sometime. I'll take a look at it in a couple of months. And I turned around two minutes later, he had the bottle drawn up. And I said, this looks like one of the crystal heads, yeah. the famous 13 crystal heads, uh, of which uh, eight are in the possession of mankind and uh, five are are missing. Right. And I said, this is this looks like the Mitchell Hedges skull, the most beautiful one of them. Okay. And so he sort of had that idea. and, and So was he, it based on the heads? Is it that, was based yeah. on the heads, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and meanwhile, I'm thinking, you know, God, I'm, I'm not really a vodka drinker because... I open vodkas and they smell like perfume. Right. And I taste vodkas just straight and they have an oily kind of viscous feel in the front of the mouth that's very fake to me. Here we go. We've got so, the <laughs> he designs this bottle and I said, John, you know, we, we could do a pure spirit. Right. If we're gonna, if you've got this beautiful enlightened bottle and we're gonna trade on the legend of crystal heads, we can't put the normal additives that go into vodka production. Uh-huh. And they are glycol, which is basically antifreeze, citrus oil, which is a bug exterminant in its raw form, and sugar. You don't need any more, any more sugar and alcohol. So I, I came up with this inspiration. Basically, he, he was inspired to do the bottle, and my inspiration was let's strip all these additives out and see what mm-hmm. we come up with. So we did. We took the glycol, the raw sugar, the citrus oil out of the batches. We held our breath. And we have a pure spirit now that has won a double gold medal in San Francisco with no additives. It is the clean slate. We're so well-timed now in this whole movement of mixology. Mixology is now 
uh, driving restaurant sales all over the world. It, it, when you go to a restaurant now, the chef is less increasingly the star right. than the bartender. Okay. You know, people see the skull and they say, oh, it's a symbol of death. Well, Memento Mori. I don't see it as a symbol of death, and I have a completely view. That's why we called it a head. A mm-hmm. head is a living thing. Mm. Uh, and, um, and, and certainly, you know, these are very animated uh, pieces in real life. Uh, there's one uh, owned by Joanne Parks, her name is, and she has a skull called Max. <laughs> she says that she's got to put it in the closet because she feels it talk to her. And um, everyone who owns them has a, a, a feeling of, of well-being when they look upon them and uh, and a kind of a, almost as if there's a, some kind of a finger reaching out from the supernatural okay. world. Certainly the owner of the Mitchell Hedges skull, the woman who owned it, when she would put it in front of people, everyone had this wonderful, warm feeling of healing come, come oh, over. Oh, wow. So Fantastic. We're trying to recreate that with, okay. the, with the alcohol. Finally, Dan, um, is it true that there's a Ghostbusters 3 movie in the making? This is well, very exciting. Well, it's in the works. Uh, that's all I can say about it right now. Uh, okay. It's just in the works. I mean, right. we, we need to really... We can't go out there and, and do something that's not perfect. So right now we we have a script that is imperfect and we've got to perfect it. Okay. Well, fantastic. Dan Aykroyd, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Ray. Do you believe in God? Never met him. Yeah, well, I do. And I love Jesus' style, you know. This roof cap is made of a magnesium tungsten alloy. What are you so involved with that? These are the blueprints for the structural ironwork in Dana Barrett's apartment building, and they're very, very strange. Hey, Ray, do you remember something in the Bible about the last days when the dead would rise from the grave? I remember Revelation 7:12. And I looked as he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the moon became as blood, and the seas boiled, and the skies fell. Judgment Day. Judgment Day. Every ancient religion has its own myth about the end of the world. Myth? Ray, has it ever occurred to you that maybe the reason we've been so busy lately is because the dead have been rising from the grave? How about a little music? Ernie Hudson, we started talking about Winston. There's one really great scene where he starts um, talking with Ray about Judgment Day, which always gives me the willies, but at the same time, it sort of brings you right down to earth with the idea that Winston is a nice sort of uh, link to just the regular people uh, to these guys. And he's, he's, he's not a super scientist. He doesn't uh, really get all of this um, quantum physics stuff, but he's a very important part of the team because he's normal. Basically, he's he's not one of them. (laughs) I have seen shit that will turn turn you white. white. (laughs) (laughs) I I do wish he'd kept the moustache for Ghostbusters 2, though. He almost looks like a different guy without it. Oh, the other thing, and this is disgusting. Some of the Ghostbusters 2 video boxes and posters... Don't have him on? Don't have him on. So I was saying earlier, Neil, is that the in the US it was very much about the actors, but yeah. everywhere else in the world it was the iconic logo. Look at that one I just posted there. That's a really crappy 
It's was. terrible. And that yeah. was done way after the fact as well. Bill Murray looks like a zombie. Yeah, awful. Yeah. Yeah, it's basically the same as the one that Netflix has. Imagine being Ernie Hudson and looking at that image and going, yeah, I'm awfully glad I was in that film. <laughs> Janine, any calls? No. Any messages? No. Any customers? No, Dr. Venkman. It's a good job, isn't it? Type something, will you? We're paying for this stuff. No stare at me. You got the bug eyes. Janine! Sorry about the bug eyes thing. I'll be in my office. You're very handy, I can tell. I bet you like to read a lot, too. Print is dead. Oh, that's very fascinating, Timmy. I read a lot myself. Some people think I'm too intellectual, but I think it's a fabulous way to spend your spare time. I also play racquetball. Do you have any hobbies? I collect spores, molds, and fungus. And then we also get to meet William Atherton as Walter Peck. <laughs> now, William, William Atherton playing a dick. got teased for being Walter Peck by regular people. He would get booed in the street. People were like, hey, pencil neck. And then, you know, he'd be walking down the street talk, thinking about um, Proust or whatever uh, play he was doing for theatre at the time. And then and a school bus would stop and all the kids would lean out and go, hey... Deckless! <laughs> all, all together. Imagine that. So, William Atherton, not wanting to be typecast as a complete dick, not wanting to spend the rest of his life being hated by people just for playing a complete dick so well, went on to play Dick Thornburg in Die Hard, an <laughs> even bigger dick than Walter Peck. Who isn't, who isn't called Dickless, but is called dick, dick in that one, despite the fact he's clearly Richard Thornburg. But no, no, to everyone else, he's Dick. Holly even specifically called him Dick with emphasis yeah. in yeah. Uh, Die Hard 2. Uh, <laughs> honestly, fair play to him. He does this brilliantly. He immediately gets you to hate him. It's like he's got this tiny sniff of power as uh, as a government official. And now he's get, rather than actually being able to directly affect all the people who bullied him when he was in school, he's now going to take it out on every smart-ass he meets. And Dr. Venkman is exactly like the kind of shit that he wants to punish. And he does. And you can't kind of blame him, really. Yeah. Because Peter's totally rude to him and actually deserves to be fucked over like that. The problem is that uh, New York City gets fucked over. Yeah, not so good. Mm. Oh, uh, speaking of that moment when they're uh, with uh, Judgment Day, they're smoking. There is so much smoking in this film. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it just dates the film, though. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, anything from the 70s and 80s is basically full of people smoking. smoking. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was what they all did. <laughs> You get that great scene where Ray uh, is walking around the corner and, and he's about to light a cigarette and yeah, just opens hanging. his mouth and he just sticks to his lip. Yeah, <laughs> he goes running off. There. Um, there's actually, there was going to be a shot uh, when they showed inside the ectocontainment unit the ghosts behind a grid uh, of, uh, I think, positively charged um, electrons? Protons? Protons? Something or other. Uh, either way, it, was, uh, you know, it, it kind of made you feel sorry for the ghosts. So they got rid of it because it was like, no, because we, we want people to not really think too much about it. Maybe they're at rest, maybe they're not. Turns out they were quite happy to get out. Uh, so then, yeah, uh, Lewis's party, we're going to play Parcheesi, we're going to do some Twister, there's going to be some breakdancing, and uh, and Dana gets snatched by those arms. And that is, re- again, you probably wouldn't get that into a PG these days. Can I say, as a kid, 
That is the scene that freaked me out the most. There's no reason for it. There's no warning it's going to happen. You think something's going to happen because of the the door behind her, because it sort of like starts to turn to rubber and then sort of gets starts to bend inwards, and then that happens and it's like a total um, sneak freak out. It's really really good though. <laughs> but yeah. god damn it, that scared me so much as a kid. Yeah. Oh yeah. And again, uh, Sigourney Weaver selling the terror there. In fact, do, uh, do you recognize when she slams the fridge on Zoo and goes, ah! It's exactly the same sound and face as when at the end of Alien, when uh, she's just about to pop the airlock on the ship, she turns around and the alien's just right behind her. She goes, ah! Clang! <laughs> so yeah, she brought the same amount of seriousness about the role to, uh, to this and had to put up with Bill Murray. Okay, and Lewis's party, it is abundantly obvious he has invited clients rather than friends. And he says, he even says that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and talks with way too much candor about their personal financial situations with <laughs> each other. Folks. It's um, clearly based on some, uh, a character that either Ackroyd or he has known. Yeah. yeah. Um, because you, know, you do, you know, through your career and stuff, you do meet people who are like that. And, you know, that, that their every memory of, of meeting you is, or is, is, you know, some kind of business dealings that they've done. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he's just so perfect. I, I, I would suspect it was probably him. It's possible he also has mild Asperger's because he remembers the minutiae so much as well. Yeah. And that would also relate to him not being able to focus, uh, to, uh and too much. So, uh, yeah, having a career in numbers. Mm. And also the way he talks, he just sort of, it's almost like stream of consciousness. It's everything yeah. that pops into his mind very, very quickly in just this stream. And he, he almost doesn't pause to take a breath. Um, he, he's completely unaware of like the signals people give him to say, you know, yeah. go away, please. <laughs> Cause all, like that first conversation he with has him, yeah. with, um, him and, uh, uh, Sigourney Weaver all exactly. the way through that. Sigourney Weaver's like, just go away. And he's just not getting it at all. Lewis. I'm going home. Well, don't leave yet. And well, listen, maybe if we start dancing, other people will join in. Okay. Oh, don't move. I just got to get the door. Ted, Annette! Hey. Glad you could come. How you doing? Give me your coats. Everybody, this is Ted and Annette Fleming. Ted has a small carpet cleaning business in receivership. Annette's drawing a salary from a deferred bonus from two years ago. They got 15000 left on the house at 8%. So they're okay. So, does anybody want to play Parcheesi? Okay, who brought the dog? Straight after that, he gets chased by some, some so, maniac brought a cougar to a party. So this is the bit, Alex, I was mentioning earlier that yeah. my daughter finds terrifying. Ooh, so well, all yeah. of all of the most of the, the you know the stuff you've been talking about the hands and everything else, she just laughs at. Yeah. But I think it's the fact that it's somebody being chased by yeah. something. She yeah. finds that absolutely terrifying, and that's the bit where she then hides behind her hands. It did unsettle me. Yeah, yeah. So I was much the same. I, I think it used to me as well, and I, I, it took me a long time to work out what it was, and I realised it's because that creature sort of claymation, mm. that stop motion animation, it does give it that really otherworldly feel to it. Yeah, and it's kind of creepy. I, I think it's, just the design of those creatures is scary. Though yeah, they no. just they look like they could rip you in half. They look yeah. horrible. Yeah, <laughs> this is really actually. There's a couple of points uh, where where the dogs are, are chasing after Lewis. 
where it is the only point at which the effects look at all dated. Yes. Because the, the, it's, I don't know exactly how it's done. It's kind of blue screened or whatever. You can uh, see the squares around the dog. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's just, it's where it leaps out onto the street, particularly through the doorway and lands. Uh, and it just looks like it's kind of been sort of chopped in. Yeah. And that's almost like photoshopped. That, yeah, and that's the only point really. I mean, there's a few bits of the animatronics and so forth that are a little that have been improved a lot, but really that's the only bit where it looks anything other than it looks a bit, a little bit naff. That but other than that, Tie Fighters in the uh, Star Wars trilogy, if you look carefully, especially in Empire Strikes Back. Oh, yeah, the asteroid belt. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but I mean it's 1984 this 84. was released, so yeah. all things considered, it's really not doing too badly, but. That, it does look a bit janky at that point, but yeah. um, for the most part, those dogs are just bloody terrifying. <laughs> they are very, very scary. It's also very disconcerting when he does hammer on the uh, restaurant and nobody helps him. Mm-hmm. That, so that's that, kind of it's like then that's his point where he could be rescued and he might be able to get out of it, and then but they just sort of go back to their eating. You're like, no, pay attention to this poor guy, and you feel for him. Yeah, I mean, it's like a, a half a second pause where everyone just stops yeah. and then just looks away and carries Another on. Another nutter I'm, in New York. Yeah. I'm afraid that very very thing happened today. Really? Someone had a heart attack at a station near me in Herne Bay and uh, on the platform, and Shit. commuters just stepped over him to get on the train. Jesus yeah. Christ! Yeah, I looked at the newspaper to, to, after this day of recording. That still happens. Did he die? <laughs> no, he was fine, but everyone just walked over him. Very so shocking. Scum. It is, isn't Some it? human scum. Yeah. Jesus. Okay, on that bombshell, um, <laughs> Peter immediately afterwards meets the game. I mean, actually, I'm not sure what the terror dog was going to do exactly to uh, Lewis, but it appears to jump inside him. Because uh, when, when Peter meets uh, Dana again, she's got all weird eye makeup on and uh, is being blown constantly by an ethereal wind and is possessed... Hello. That's a different look for you, isn't it? Are you the key master? Not that I know of. Are you the key master? Yes. I'm a friend of his. He told me to meet him here. I didn't get your name. I am Zul. I am the gatekeeper. Oh. What are we doing today, Zul? We must prepare for the coming of Gozer. Gozer, huh? The Destructor. Are we still going out? You know, you could pick up the place if you're expecting someone. Do you want this body? Is this a trick question? I guess the roses worked, huh? Take me now, sub-creature. We never talk anymore. Which is all kind of disconcerting and, and funny especially because he, he's being so offhand and uh, go ahead um, throughout the whole uh, bit but when she goes there is no Dana only Zool that's really creepy yeah Dana it's Peter there is no Dana there is only Zool 
Oh, Zuli, you nut. Now, come on. Come on, I want to talk to Dana. Dana. Just relax. Come on. Dana. Dana. Can I talk to Dana? There is no Dana, only Zul. That's Ivan Reitman doing that voice. Yeah. Uh, does anyone remember Ghost Watch? Oh, the, well, the hoax TV yeah. Um, thing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a similar bit in, in uh, uh, that. Anyone who remembers Ghost Watch uh, will, will obviously know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyone who doesn't uh, <clears throat> will maybe talk about that some other dark time because it's actually really quite fascinating. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, <clears throat> the there is there aren't many things that are actually more um, unsettling just to watch than somebody talking in a completely different, much deeper voice than they should, and uh, who appears to have someone talking through them. That uh, is immediately jumping into what you were suggesting earlier, uh, Josh, of the Uncanny Valley. Yeah. Here's the weird thing. After all the uh, the, the funny um, uh, floating above the bed um, 19th century magic trick stuff goes on, and uh, Sigourney's done her uh, really quite crazy, creepy, possessed act, uh, Peter calls the fire station, um, Ghostbusters HQ, and says uh, she's just had had her uh, dose her up with 300 cc's of Thorazine, and she's going to take a little nap now. And then they carry on talking, and it's like, whoa, hang on, back up. Where did you get that much Thorazine from? 300 cc's of Thorazine on a date? What were you planning to do? <laughs> I know you're a doctor, Dr. Venkman, but I didn't think you were that kind of doctor. <laughs> I think that's one of those lines you're not meant to think too hard about. Yeah. Now, has anybody heard of Spook Central? No. I, I, that's no. The li- I know that's the line they refer to her apartment in, as your girlfriend lives in the corner penthouse of Spook Central. I sent, uh, tweeted you guys all a link to this uh, yesterday. Um, has anyone seen Room 237? That's not the the um, Samuel L. Shining. The Shining. No, yeah, no. It's it is a, uh, a documentary on the making of The Shining and the impact of The Shining. Uh, Room two three seven is uh, a series of interviews with various people who interpret uh, symbolism within The Shining uh, as under their belief that Kubrick intended every single shot to mean what they're saying incredibly detailed aspects which all pertain to uh, to deep underlying messages underneath The Shining almost none of which Kubrick could have intended and if all of them are actually in there then he's not only a genius but like Evo Shandor levels of genius somebody points out that there is a Native American Indian brand of soap powder uh, in the uh, larder and that is uh, why The Shining is all about the uh, destruction of the Native Americans and the taking of their land and somebody else uh, is um, pointing out how uh, The Shining is all about sexual repression and if if you pause it at just the right time when Jack goes into the office of his publisher the guy stands up and gets up and there's a big black binder pointing outwards and it looks like an enormous erection and uh, he's saying this is it at that exact point and it's like can you see the symbolism? And it's basically like what Gonzo does, only it's done by tinfoil hat-wearing crazy people. <laughs> so, just like Gonzo, then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, once I, I nailed the front screen projection process in, uh, inside the Apollo footage, 
Then I became interested in seeing if Kubrick left any clues in the rest of his career to his possible involvement in faking the Apollo moon footage. And I was overjoyed about two years ago when I received my Blu-ray copy of The Shining and I put it in my Blu-ray machine and sat down one night to watch it and I realized that all of the things that one could imagine that Stanley Kubrick would have had to go through to fake the Apollo moon footage and there in the movie every time that Stanley deviated from the Stephen King novel he deviated into those exact questions what was it like to make a deal with the US government what was it like to to accidentally tell someone what you were doing and to watch them possibly have to suffer the consequences of your lack of integrity what was it like to uh, to lie to your wife and tell her that you were doing one thing when you were doing another what was it like when your wife found out what you were really doing these are the questions that i had long before i'd seen the shining again after a, maybe an eight or nine year absence and i did wasn't sure i was right for the first hour i wasn't sure that i had actually you know i wasn't sure if i was blurring the line between what i wanted to see and what i was seeing and then at about 58 minutes in the film is the famous scene where danny's playing with his trucks and he stands up and he's wearing the Apollo 11 sweater with a rocket taking off. Then I knew I had nabbed it. And then I started watching the film with an intensity that I don't think I've ever watched a movie before. And every line began ringing true. Um, you know, Wendy, that is just so typical of you. Do you, don't you don't you know I have obligations to my employers? Do you have any idea what a contract is? Do you know what an agreement is? Jack Nicholson's whole tirade at, uh, against his wife—that's Stanley. That's uh, Stanley telling his wife that you know after she discovered what he was doing, which was the Apollo footage. What Room Two Three Seven requires is an enormous dose of self-deprecation and the ability to laugh at how crazy your theories sound. But everyone talks about it like it's well, it's obvious, really. Uh, the whole thing is about how Kubrick is silently admitting that he capitulated with the faking of the moon landings. No, he didn't. One bit actually I really quite like that actually does hold water, which is that uh, if at the beginning of The Shining um, they drive past a, a red Volkswagen and it's uh, been uh, it crashed by the side of the road. In the the book, uh, Stephen King describes that they're driving in a uh, a red Volkswagen, but in the film it's a yellow Volkswagen. So it's like Kubrick saying, "Look at this. This is your book. I have trashed it and left it by the side of the road. I am doing Stanley Kubrick's The Shining," which does seem like he could have done that intentionally. It does require a certain amount of set dressing to do that. Yes, that probably is one of the ones that is true. Yeah, uh, but most of the rest of it is bunkum. However, if you look at the uh, trailer for Spook Central, uh, it's done so dryly and so po-faced that I actually believed it was another real one from the same people. What really becomes the voice of the other world is the Yamaha DX7, heard for the first time when the beams radiate from the Columbia woman. She started as a Roman soldier holding a shield and a stalk of wheat, but she evolved to become what was known as the Coca-Cola Columbia woman because of her distinctive shape. So before the film even begins, we're looking at a a bottle of Coca-Cola, we're hearing this otherworldly tune, 
moon and we're being told, hey, you want to know what the real unknowable force is? Well, go to the kitchen and look in the fridge. poster that first came out looked so much like something a civic body or a council would put up, which is a symbol that only carries as much authority as the public is willing to imbue it with. That's the no smoking sign. I mean, that's just a symbol, but the world treats the intolerance it stands for as a moral right. In Ghostbusters, they're equating poltergeists and psychokinetic energy with the habit that's most likely to get you ostracized, something that's gone from an emblem of the sophisticate to a filthy habit. And what does that say about the tobacco industry? I think for a film that really isn't about sex, it is about sex. The image of the man's arm coming up between Sigourney Weaver's legs had a profound influence on me. The librarian materializes out of Bill Murray and then the manager out of Dan Aykroyd. Michael Winner's The Sentinel is drawn from the same structural blueprints. You know, I mean, head is all the symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and what causes ADHD, food coloring and chemical sweetness. The eggs, because they had a life of their own and she couldn't control it, that was a way of saying, like, she had to either take back control or let things happen and, and make the best of it, which is maybe what having kids is like. If you doubt it for a second that the film was about obesity, look at the scene where Dan Aykroyd stops in front of a poster of a pig and says, this is it. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> yes. yes. Yes, it is a coincidence. <laughs> So yeah, that uh, that is rather like watching Room Two Three Seven only uh, the whole way. I, I I honestly recommend you folks go out and, and see if you can find a, a copy of Two Three Seven to actually watch because it is ludicrous to watch. I, I I love looking for that kind of meaning in stuff, and this you know watching the Spook Central trailer made me realize, oh hey, we've just got to talk about how great Ghostbusters is rather than looking for symbolism because looking for symbolism, we're going down this path in this. Some films. Just cry out for it. Uh, this one, not necessarily. Different strokes for different folks. Right. So shutting down the ecto-containment unit. Always, uh, it, again, it's that, that wonderful uh, set, series of uh, tense moments sort of leading up to it and saying, this is going to be bad, this is going to be really, really bad, so that when it happens and the ghosts take Manhattan, uh, you get the song Magic. Which, um, if you actually listen to the beginning, I'm actually I'm going to play it now for you. Mick Smiley, a magic, and um, most people who've watched Ghostbusters um, haven't listened to the uh, soundtrack, haven't heard the first part of Magic, which just plays out like a, a fairly drippy '80s uh, sort of uh, love song, and then halfway through, suddenly gets really creepy and like um, Sisters of Mercy or The Cure or something else like that.
Okay, so then when they're in uh, the uh, the prison and they explain, like it's almost like Ray comes in with a clipboard and lays down. Okay, right, a lot of stuff's about to happen. Let me just explain what it is that is now happening. And uh, it, it's almost like they didn't really need Winston there to explain that to you because they've got a bunch of other prisoners around them at that stage. But I suppose ultimately they need to explain it to Winston because he is going to matter in the coming hours. But yeah, uh, the, the the discussion about Evo Shandor, I'm really glad they never actually showed Shandor because the uh, it makes him seem much more sort of a nefarious sort of character working in the background of this that... Um, the, the, the description of him is quite creepy. As with all things, your imagination is ten times more frightening than anything they could show you, so yeah. it is better that they keep him uh, out of the movie. It's quite significant because um, he was going to be in the movie. Anybody know how? No, how? He was going to be Goza. Yeah, when Goza turned up, it was going to be the form of Evo Shandor. Like, he, he went through this portal and now he was coming back and he was the host for Goza. Uh, however, he was going to be played by... Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens. <laughs> Pee-wee Herman. In the Pee-wee Herman suit. Oh, God. Why did they think that would be a good idea? What a placeholder. That wouldn't just really date horribly in seconds and actually completely make the rest of the movie fall flat. Thank God they realised it was a bad idea. They uh, ended up going for a Slovakian model in the end for uh, Goza. And uh, she had to have her voice dubbed over because when she said choose and perish, <laughs> it sounded like Jews and berries. <laughs> Which, apparently Bill Murray was uh, constantly taking the piss out and saying, there's no Jews and berries here. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I had to dub her in the end. <laughs> um, anyone uh, recognise the uh, cop who ushers the Ghostbusters out of their cell and into the mayor's office? Al! It's Reginald Val Johnson. Reginald Val Johnson, Al Powell from Die Hard. Yeah. So basically, he, you know, he and Dick <laughs> met up and they went off and uh, dealt with McLean. <laughs> There's only uh, two other men who are as despised as uh, William Atherton, as Walter Peck, and Dick Thornburg. I think Dick, he, because he's been both of these guys, uh, you know, beats out the other two. Uh, but um, the guy who was the teacher in The Breakfast Club, two weeks. I got you for two weeks. Don't mess with the bull, son, you get the horns. Who was also in so Die Hard. Hard. <laughs> and also a dick. <laughs> uh, and the only other one is the teacher slash dad in um, the Twisted Sister videos for I Wanna Rock and We're Not Gonna Take It. <laughs> <laughs> I love those videos. Yeah, but that's not good company for William Atherton to keep. I seem to, wasn't he in Biodome? I think he was. Yes, he was, and I'm ashamed to say I have seen Biodome. As long as you don't own Biodome. No. Then the the late-night television is bad for you sometimes. Then the keymaster meets the gatekeeper, and it's a sort of a wonderful uh, role reversal where um, uh, she is the dominant one and considerably taller than him. Uh, and it's, 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 he's almost childlike uh, next to her. Well, actually, before that, there's a scene... Um, a Ghostbusters HQ, mm. where they've got the colander on yeah. Lewis's head, but in the background there's a screen, yeah, and it's showing the terror dog. Yeah, that's a really neat way of doing it. It's um, it, it's like uh, also they showed you proof of concept earlier before where Dana's got it on, and there is no terror dog inside her at that point, so you just see mm. Dana with the heat vision on. So it's kind of um, 
uh, again, unsettling. But you'd imagine Vins would be a lot more aggressive um, and more like the key mo- the, the gatekeeper. But uh, as it turns out, there's quite a bit of Lewis still knocking around inside there. He couldn't, uh, even possessed, he couldn't stop the Lewis. <laughs> yes, have some. Yes, have some. I am the key master. I am the gatekeeper. So yeah, the keymaster meets the gatekeeper. Do you think they had sex? Oh yeah, that's why. Oh yeah, that's why they got the name. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say keymaster, gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, the it's fact pretty that obvious. No ambiguity from you guys. It's like, oh <laughs> god. I just didn't want to say anything because that's just a horrible image. <laughs> the other thing I was going to ask is actually why possess them at all? Why not just hatch out of the uh, statues they've obviously been hiding in these terror dogs and then just turn around? The doorway's right there. <laughs> well, presumably the it has to be intercourse in human form. Well, you know. Oh. Yeah, maybe. Actually, my, the gate. my theory was actually basically that it had to, uh, it required an enormous amount of, uh, tele- uh sorry, p- psychokinetic energy, and to that end, the, uh, ghosts had to be released. So the, uh, the keymaster and the gatekeeper had to in some way precipitate or at least wait for the actual release of the ghosts. I think they opened the gate. The mm. ghosts are the sign. The sign they're looking for, and now is the time to do it. Okay. Um, yeah, no, they did, t- they do talk about the signs. It's very biblical. Real Wrath of God type stuff. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Basically the worst parts of the Bible. That's the next scene. Hey, where's this peck? I am Walter Peck, sir, and I'm prepared to make a full report. These men are consummate snowball artists. They use sense and nerve gases to induce hallucinations. People think they're seeing ghosts. And they call these bozos who conveniently show up to deal with the problem with the fake electronic light show. Everything was fine with our system until the power grid was shut off by Dickless here. They caused an explosion. Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. Well, that's what I heard. This city hall. Now, what am I going to do here, John? What is this? All I know is that was no light show we saw this morning. I've seen every form of combustion known to man. But this beats the hell out of me. The walls in the 53rd precinct were bleeding. How do you explain that? Good afternoon, gentlemen. Oh, your eminence. Uh, how are you, Lenny? You're looking good, Mike. We're in a real fix here. What do you think I should do? Lenny, officially, the church will not take any position on the religious implications of these uh, phenomena. Hmm. Personally, Lenny, I think it's a sign from God. But don't quote me on that. No, I think that's a smart move, Mike. Well, I'm not going to call a press conference and tell everyone to start praying. <clears throat> oh, I'm uh, Winston Zettimore, Yana. But I've only been with the company for a couple of weeks. But I got to tell you, these things are real. Since I joined these men, I have seen shit that'll turn you white. 
Well, you could believe, Mr. Pecker. My name is Peck. Or you could accept the fact that this city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. What if you're wrong? If I'm wrong, nothing happens. We go to jail peacefully, quietly. We'll enjoy it. But if I'm right, and we can stop this thing, Lenny, you will have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. I don't believe you're seriously considering listening to these men. Get him out of here. Bye. I'll fix you, Venkman. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to get you a nice fruit basket. I'm going to miss him. We got work to do. Now, what do you need from me? Okay, right. I got, I got a theory on this one, folks. Does this sound oddly familiar to you? Four men from different backgrounds with differing ideologies are thrown together into a fledgling team. They bicker and banter for the first two-thirds of the movie, which focuses on comedy and characterization over action, and their group has some teething issues. They are betrayed by government officials who should have been helping them, and New York City is overrun by greeblies, which causes chaos. <laughs> Turns out these guys are the only ones who can save the day, so after a period of despair, when it seems like they might be hurting the situation rather than helping it, they pull together and fend off attacks from enormous creatures. Atop a skyscraper, above which is a portal to another world, they do battle with a god. The portal closes, the day is saved, someone almost dies but doesn't, and they emerge to a shattered New York to the delight of cheering crowds who have been touched by their bravery and appointed them the rightful heroic saviors of the world. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Avengers. Joss Whedon has a boner a mile tall for this film because he modeled the Avengers on it. It's obviously much higher scale and there's a lot more going on, but it's basically the same kind of story. Although now you have made me want Josh Whedon to direct the remake. 
Oh my god, that would be intense! <laughs> Who's Josh Whedon, sir? <laughs> oh, don't you start with that. Nuclear <laughs> bombs in there. Look, you can't say nuclear, I can't say Josh. So, Josh Whedon directed Iron Man flying a nuclear bomber up into the portal to destroy the Jituri. In Avengers, they required Agent Coulson's belief in them to form together and, and, uh, and, and fight back. They need that, that show of faith. And so, yeah, then they end up government-sanctioned uh, and uh, going down the street in this sort of motorcade-type thing. And, and, and there's that brilliant song, Saving the Day. Which is awesome. Which is totally awesome. It's, it's totally all right, let's get shit done type song. And, yeah, you've got the, the cheering crowds. And that's really significant. And it must have made a huge mark on me. Because that actually hasn't really happened much between 84 and Avengers. The significant ones are the Spider-Man films. Uh, as in, it's said in New York, there are cheering crowds there as well. The world is never at stake in Spider-Man. In the first film, Green Goblin might destroy a cable car full of people. In the second film, Dr. Octopus puts a train in danger, but no one knows about the thing that really uh, threatens New York City, which is the um, sun-creating device thing. So all of the actual genuine threatening drama happens without anyone knowing how much of a hero Spider-Man actually is, even though there's that wonderful, quiet little uh, train scene, Gonzo on Spider-Man coming soon. And in Spider-Man 3... It's all completely mess. mess that um, cares about. Venom holds up a building site and might or might not kill Mary Jane. Who gives a shit? But in this, the entire world is at stake. It, I think it's actually a bit of a trope um, in, in American cinema. They always use New York when they want to show uh, a city sort of pulling together. Mm. And this is like pre nine eleven as well. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned Ghostbusters, you mentioned other examples there, but even things like Crocodile Dundee, you know, the end of that, it's the same thing. It seems to be that uh, there's fascination with the fact that in New York you've just got so many people living on top of each other. Yeah. and uh, ev- It's the most densely populated city in the world. Yeah, and, and there's this stereotype that everyone in New York just is angry and hates each other all the time. Yeah. But but in times of need, it's a city that, that, that pulls together and, and very much, you know, post 9-11, that was... Uh, a narrative played out in the media as well but it's something that's been in uh, cinema for many many years you know Winston I, even I, says I love this town that's yeah. like a little thank you love love you nod and blowing a kiss to New York or oh, Frank Sinatra sang a song about it you know yes. well I think I think more significantly New York is an international city rather than yeah. just a city that's it's, part of America it's much like London in that it's a, it's a part of the world it's where people gather from all over the place it's not just an American city yeah no and it's also the fact it's a gateway city as well or it was for you know uh, many decades you know that was the main in- before you know major air travel that was the main entry point into the states yeah uh, you wouldn't get uh, Ghostbusters 3 happening in Baltimore, for example. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no that would strangely enough, I could see them doing one in Hollywood. Yeah, uh, feasibly. You really? Move it to I'm LA. Sure. I don't know. It would seem very phony. The whole point yeah. of Ghostbusters was that, uh, despite the fact that um, Peter was very sarcastic... Oh, I didn't say it would be good. I just said I could real. see him doing it. Oh, I could see him doing it, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about the future of the franchise next week, definitely. So let's just let's just finish off. Uh, we've got the stairs sequence. Uh, I love what they did with the visual optics of the... Um, well, for a start, hang on. First, you've got the, uh, the, the, the pavement cracks, and, um, and then they, everyone thinks they're dead, and then they pull themselves out, which is a lovely little moment. And just seeing the crowd loving them 
kind of validates your uh, enthusiasm and excitement for the film itself. It's like, yeah, Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. And you can actually properly chant that along with them. Isn't and then that the scene where Ray Parker Jr. is there as well. I didn't know he was there. Yeah, he's he's one of the policemen. <laughs> I just remember the music video is like it's it, again it's it's based on star power and they're just like let's get every all these stars into the thing and we'll get everyone singing it. It's like this big event and they they really played the uh, the movie um, so well. But in in terms of being able to sell it to people and get it into their mindsets, as you say that the, the merchandising in there as well. Oh, but if the movie had stunk, it wouldn't have made any difference. It had to be a really you know a, a movie that just captured people and made them grin. And just like the Avengers, they kept going back to see it again and again because it was so much fun. And that's why it beat out Dark Knight Rises. And other reasons too, but hey. You know what my most overriding memory of the um, music video is? Uh, Neon. Everything's neon in there. It is, yeah. It looks so completely different to everything else in the film. But Chevy Chase is in it. (laughs) Which is cool. Which was, I mean, it's weird when I was watching it with uh, Lyra and I went, do you know who who that is? And she went, no. I went, it's Pierce. Because she loves community. (laughs) Who's Pierce? What's community? <laughs> now, if you'd said Fletch, I'd have been there. Yeah, I would have totally so you understood. think it's a crime I've not seen Blues Brothers, a film that's as old as me. It's even more of a crime you've not seen Community, one of the funniest TV shows I think ever you'll fucking like it, made. Actually, Neil. Yeah, it's, it's oh, I've seen Community. Uh, it, it, oh, you're just being a dick. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> It's good. I had to do it. Yeah. I had to. Speaking of which, Jeffrey Tambor is in the music video for Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, he is. And John Candy. Uh, Peter Falk. Good old Peter Falk. Columbo's in there. They're all famous New Yorkers. That's the key thing. Ah! I thought Chevy Chase lived in uh, L.A. He may have done. I mean, it's like Columbo. Everyone associates Peter Falk with L.A., but he's a New Yorker. Really ah, cool. maybe uh, Chevy Chase lived for, in New York for three no, years. Chevy Chase started on, well, not, probably not started, but he was on he's SNL quite a lot. He's from New York. Like I said, love letter to the city itself. Yeah. So then you got the stairs with the wonderful sort of composite effect where you're like, actually, hang on, that's mental. No one would ever design a building like that. It's what ridiculous. What floor are we on? That's <laughs> 35th. Let me tell you when we get to the number 50, because I'm going to throw up. I'm assuming the lift's not working. I just love that, because it's one of those things that you don't see in action movies. Big build-up, big build-up, cut to them getting there. But stairs. It, it cuts to stairs. Yeah. Now that I think about it, there are there are a lot of little beats in it, which um, it feels like they developed the humour specifically uh, for Avengers, but it, it does feel, now that I think about it, like the Avengers is the spiritual successor to Ghostbusters. Wow. Did not expect that when I went into this project. So then when they get to the roof, and uh, as you go say, Peter lets everyone else go first... And uh, then, again, it opens, and much like with Dana's fridge, there's a, a really kind of eerie uh, sense of otherworldliness about uh, this. And uh, th- th- this kind of stuff, really fascinating. And um, I-, I tend to eat up... Is it, is it Lovecraftian? Yeah, sort of. Horror. Yeah. I mean, it's basically about a dark god that will eat the world. You, you were that, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, that's definitely Lovecraftian. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, that, that's, uh, that, there's a lot of that that plays into Hellboy as well. So it's like Hellboy is a kind of a spiritual successor too. Um, Hellboy essentially does take on Cthulhu. Yeah, literally. Has a fight with a big squid. It's a girl. It's 
Gozer. I thought Gozer was a man. It's whatever it wants to be. Well, whatever it is, it's got to get by us. Right. Go get her, Ray. Gozer the Gozerian? Good evening. As a duly designated representative of the city, county, and state of New York, I order you to cease any and all supernatural activity and return forthwith to your place of origin or to the nearest convenient parallel dimension. That ought to do it. Thanks very much, Ray. Are you a god? No. Then... someone asks you if you're a god you say yes yeah th this is another thing that really dates it the, the ladies haircut you don't tend to get girls with flat top haircuts anymore <laughs> did in the 80s you don't now for good reason <laughs> very severe well i don't know alex maybe gods from other dimensions are still into that kind of hairstyle you don't know very true no. You know, she's a god. She's new in New York. She wants to make sure she fits in. <laughs> yeah. So she gets the sort of a spandex costume and big red eyes. And two terror dogs, because hey. Yeah. And the, if you watch carefully during the bit where she sort of lands, there's a little bit of a shake on the foot because she's landing in stilettos. And again, I think we're going to need to get Sharon in for that. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> inappropriate footwear. Although surely the stilettos are made of ectoplasm. Be fair, she's a god. I don't think it matters. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm willing to forgive it when it's a god where, like, practicality doesn't really seem to be an issue. Of course, if it, if it was the Avengers, are you a god? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, god. die, and I block it with my hammer. Okay, what else you got? I've got a hook. Oh, God, I love the Avengers. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, you got the uh, that whole confrontation thing, and then it sort of ends in a little bit of a, an anticlimax, purposefully so. And um, when Stay Puft shows up, this was actually basically one of the keystones of the uh, scripting. Uh, they were, they were, it was going, to, uh, he was present as one of the creatures that they actually, in the very early drafts, when they were fl fighting through time and space, and they were dressed like SWAT police, um, that Stapoff was one of them. Uh, but they were like, right, Stapoff turns up in the middle of this movie. Ah, uh -uh, let's put him at the end. Now, what could happen to make Stapoff turn up at the end? And then everything else in the rest of the movie was like, how do we get to Stapoffed? He was the, uh, the, the, the orgasm of the script, if you will. <laughs> Literally all over William Atherton. <laughs> so yeah, you get this wonderful, I, even today, even though I know it's just model work, this thing looks convincing. It could be the lighting. Just, you know what, those, they, they, that what, 60 seconds he's on screen terrorizing New York is still so much better than Godzilla. God, yeah. <laughs> 
And it's iconic as well. Stay Puft, along with Slimer, uh, became uh, synonymous uh, with the, the Ghostbusters. You could just, I mean, he became almost as famous as the films. Not you only could, that, he, they became good guys because they were liked so much. Yeah, anti-heroes almost, like Dracula. Not really. Stay Puft helps out the Ghostbusters. When? In the, in the cartoon? In the cartoon, yeah. Oh, right. I, I, you know, I can't remember that. Uh, now Were that, he the Mantis? Just, does ring a bell. He fights a giant Mantis balloon. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll shut up now. That's fancy. <laughs> what if he fought a giant Mantis? That actually does ring a bell. I might Also, there is an episode of Real Ghostbusters where they do go to Japan. Hmm. Of course, he is on the, um, the, the, in the, in the opening sequence of the Real Ghostbusters. Like I say, totally iconic, and they had to make sure that their, their, uh, the key, uh, characters that people remember from the movie were right there, front and center. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, uh, wonderful putting him in there. And the fact that he's so cheery as well. And it's, he's got this kind of, uh, lovely, cheeky, happy face. But then when you notice that there's a certain malevolence to it and he's going, ah, at times. It's not like demonic, but he's definitely, uh, he's more like Loki, the god of mischief, but enormous. Here's the thing, when, when I was a kid, when, when I was a kid, I was absolutely terrified of this guy. Um, and I, like, I, I know we jokingly talked about, oh, cute puppies, but there is something about, like, something that's on its surface is kind of innocent, mm. but there is something underneath that, that's demonic that just unsettles me. And Which is they, kind of the whole point of Stay Puff. Yeah, no, exactly. And yeah. and I know a lot of people give me funny looks that I, like, I honestly found this guy more scary than the terror dogs, you know, earlier. Like, th- this guy just unsettles me. Not so much now, because um, <laughs> I, I can see he's like a claymation, uh, you know, figurine, but God, when I was a kid, I actually closed my eyes when this guy appeared on screen. He's kind of a, a, a corporate logo uh, smushing together of uh, the Pillsbury Doughboy and the Michelin Man. It's like they created uh, something that not only could be a corporate mascot, but is actually better and more iconic and more memorable than most corporate mascots. Very the, as well. It's the sailor suit. Why is he a sailor? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't seem seaworthy. <laughs> I'm sure he'd float pretty well though surely he's, got, he's, he's his own life jacket I mean that works uh, I think for me what, what makes it so what makes it work so well is the fact you've got this big balloony fluffy marshmallow guy with this big smile but then these eyes are just really sort of yeah. staring piercing eyes and they're, they're the threatening bit and it sees them as well Yeah, he's yeah. totally going to get them and um, obviously, this is following the choose the form of your destructor. Goza, the actual the actress playing Goza did a. I've got to say, despite the fact that she was effectively a model rather than a straight out actress, did a really good job at being. And obviously, it was a group effort with the costume and the effects and the voice. Uh, but she's for the few seconds she's on screen, she's really memorable. And and I believe if if a genuine Babylonian, sorry Sumerian, like there's a difference, uh, God. <laughs> Turned up. <laughs> By the way, I checked out uh, Sumerian gods on uh, Wikipedia. There's not much more information on them than there was actually within this film. Uh, although I did learn about uh, the, the various other ones on the Pantheon. Um, but I, I believe if an actual creature that was... Wo- uh, that's the thing. Again, it's like Thor. This creature was worshipped as a god doesn't necessarily make it a god. But interestingly, Gozer appears to be wearing that like a badge of honour. Like, the Hittites worship me. 
Some creatures go to the Gothian, go to the Destructor. Volga Sildroha, the Traveler, has come. Choose and perish. What do you mean, choose? We don't understand. Choose. Choose the form of the Destructor. Whatever we think of, if we think of J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover will appear and destroy us, okay? So empty your hands. Empty your hands. Don't think of anything. We've only got one shot at this. The choice is made. Whoa, oh, oh, whoa. The traveler has come. Nobody choose anything. Did you choose anything? No. Did you? Alana told me blank. I didn't choose anything. I couldn't help it. It just popped in there. What? What just popped in there? I, I, I tried to think. Look! But yeah, she's uh, she's she's unsettling. And then you got that empty your minds thing, which is terrible because it's it's got an infinite countdown on it. They could basically have emptied their minds for 17 hours, but eventually one of them's going to think of something. That required more planning. And the fact that Peter even mentions J. Edgar Hoover is seriously dangerous. An enormous J. Edgar Hoover, Leo DiCaprio himself, could have turned up. <laughs> it's kind of funny because I remember when I was watching that as a kid, I had no idea who J. Edgar Hoover was. Well, let's just do a little test here. And this is one for the folks at home. And you can uh, write in and tell us what yours was. Everyone empty their minds right now. Don't think of anything. And then the first one to think of something, tell me what you were thinking of. Uh, I'm now, thinking Adam something. What is it, Josh? <laughs> well, Josh, I, what say... did you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, you say empty your mind, and then I suddenly get this image of somebody scooping my brain out of my skull. <laughs> so basically, so... an enormous ice cream scoop comes down from the sky <laughs> and scoops your brain out. Yeah. Brilliant. What, did anyone else think of anything else? You spoke, so I just have this massive Alex Shaw rampaging <laughs> his, with his his judgmental uh, thoughts and, and forcing podcasts on people basically <laughs> that's, that's what I do podcast. <laughs> that's what I do um, <laughs> but yeah it's a really just such a ridiculous situation to be stuck in and also so inventive and great fun that's never happened before or since and if it was if it did happen since it's a reference to Ghostbusters See, what you should really, really be afraid of was it's a good job I can keep my mind empty. Mm. Think of all the horror films I've watched. God, yeah. Do we need a giant Jason Voorhees or Freddy Krueger walking down? Oh, oh God, now. Oh. <laughs> Excuse me, I, 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 I kind of scared myself. <laughs> I'm emptying my mind. Oh, I'm quite good at this. <laughs> God, that's good podcasting. Right. Uh, so yeah, then they uh, they uh, turn around and they cross the streams. And th- at this point in the movie, um, they hadn't worked out how they were going to actually end it. So they went for crossing the streams, but then they went back. And in the uh, scene where they uh, when Egon mentions it would be bad. Try to imagine all life as you know it ending instantaneously, and every molecule in your body exploding suddenly at the speed of light. 
um, they added that at the beginning, earlier part of the movie, just so that they could then call back to it at this point. Like, first you lay down a rule that you must never ever break, then at the end you break it. It's a classic trope, and uh, it, it again works exceptionally well at this stage because it's a very, it's a very simple film. Is Ghostbusters? There's not really all that much symbolism. That's why it's so hilarious that Spook Central's there because they picked a film which doesn't really have that much symbolism. It is all just great fun. It is all on the surface. Uh, there is obviously a huge amount of um, uh, enthusiasm and, and b- belief uh, coming from Dan Aykroyd, but it was really engineered um, to feel as easy and fun as it could possibly be, and it was a perfect storm of elements. But that, that, I think it's important to note that that's not easy to do. Oh, no, of course. To e- execute it, something yeah. like this is so hard to yeah. do and very rarely happens. Yeah. Well, listen uh, <clears throat> listen to the sequel show to find out why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, issues with the sequel. Um, I think I still think it gets a far more of a bum rap than it deserved. Oh, no, it's still, still a lot of fun. But, it, yeah. the, again, they, they, if anything, they try to inject more symbolism into it, and that's yeah. probably its downfall. But, anyway, that's for another <laughs> yeah. show. And they're not even trying to hide the symbolism in the second no. one. And then you get the joyous finale. I, I kind of felt sad that Stapoft had to die at all because he's well, just he so didn't. gentle. But he did step on a church in my town. No one steps on a church in my town. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, and then you get the the ending and uh, the uh, the covered in. Anyone know what that uh, the white creamy stuff was? Shaving foam, I suppose. It was indeed shaving foam. I remember... Uh, an, um, 75 gallons of shaving yeah, foam. Yeah, uh, a ridiculous amount. Uh, um, William Atherton said before they emptied the bag on top of him, which weighed, looked like it weighed about a ton, could we maybe get a stunt actor to try it out first? They tried it, and it flattened the gun. <laughs> completely flattened him. So Atherton was right. I think he said something along the lines of... Uh, and they said, oh, it's, it's like, you know, 500 pounds, but it's only shaving cream. And he said, yeah, but I did physics class. 500 pounds of feathers weighs the same as 500 pounds of pennies. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's shaving foam. I remember some kid wrote into the Ghostbusters comic and say, saying, why didn't they just eat the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man? <laughs> and there was an actual, very straightforward, pertinent reason why not. He's not marshmallow. He just looks like marshmallow. He's ectoplasm. Ectoplasm. Eww. And um, interestingly, this is followed up on in the uh, animated uh, series. Uh, the they flash back to just afterwards, and their their suits were absolutely oh, covered yeah. in extremely charged, very uh, malevolent ectoplasm. And then they, they leave their suits overnight and their suits become like spectral versions of them that run amok. So they, is, it's a nice way of following up on it. It's also the, the explanation of why they wear different unicorn uniforms. Lyra did ask, why doesn't Egon have yellow hair? Which is nice. It shows she's paying attention. I said basically it's because otherwise all four of them would have dark brown hair. And kids wouldn't be able to tell the difference and wouldn't be as interested in action figures. I had those. I those had those. Awesome. They were awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Proton packs basically just had this little bit of plastic coming out of the wand. <laughs> yes. Totally. So yeah, you got the joyous finale. It might, you know, Dana and uh, uh, Lewis really, by all rights, should have just died, but they, you know, they gave him back because it's a comedy. And it's light, and it's fun, 
and it's it's a sweet natured happy ending and they get their heroes welcome and the you know the, the 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 city welcome them with open arms and adoration and there's a slight tinge of sadness when i watch it because it's like in a few years time you guys are going to be doing birthday party calls and peter you're going to be on the z list channel doing crappy um world of the psychic stuff with people that you despise Hello, pets Weird. yeah Actually, TMNT, do you remember the 2007 film, Neil, that we, uh, and Matt, that we uh, talked about earlier this year? Reminds me a little bit of Ghostbusters 2. It's like, remember our former glories? And Mikey was doing a birthday party. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. Uh, and it ends in that all sort of wonderful, unified New York thing. And a lot of those people, you know, the, most of them were just New Yorkers who turned up on the day. And there was already Ghostbusters merchandise being doled out with that classic, iconic, um, uh, image on it, and uh, and you get the. It, it almost seems like documentary footage at the end, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, it has that sort of feel to it. All sort of crowding around Ecto One and all getting in there, and everyone's cheering. But that's the thing, because everyone there is cheering for the actors. It is documentary footage because that is their natural reaction. Well, that's what what's so great about that particular ending as well. When you think about it, because. The movie's still going as mm. the credits play, but I don't mean in the sense that you, you think of old movies. They're carrying on being those characters as the credits roll. You know, you've got um, like Ray lighting up a cigarette yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah. it, that's what gives it that feel. Yeah, It's it's a wonderful kind of a, and everyone breathe out kind of moment. The day is saved. Yeah. But this film whizzes by every time I watch it. It's like, it's, I, suddenly it's at the end. It's like, what? What just happened to our hour and 40 minutes? Yeah, I was going to say, it's only like a 90-minute film, though. Yeah. Avengers had an extra hour on that. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I think we'll we'll end there, because it's a wonderful, appropriate place to end. Uh, of course, Slimer flies into the camera, portentous of the doom that is coming through. And actually, if you check that there's a man with shaving cream on his head, which symbolizes the Tibetan monks... Do you know what it symbolizes? Nothing! Just a man with shaving cream on his head. Sometimes... A man with shaving cream on his head. A cigar is just a cigar. (laughs) Sometimes a man with shaving cream on his head, it must be Thursday. Yeah. I'm fairly certain that he just found some of that on the street and put it on his head (laughs) and started dancing. And this podcast is dedicated to composer Elmer Bernstein, 1922 to 2004. Right. So, that, that'll do for uh, Ghostbusters. Thank you, gentlemen, so, so much for coming on. This has been great, great fun. And uh, I, I will be peppering this with uh, Ghostbusters clips to give it a real feel. Okay, so we will see you next week for Ghostbusters 2, The Real Ghostbusters, Extreme Ghostbusters, and The Ghostbusters Video Game. And I'd like to thank my guests, Gary Blower and Neil Taylor of Game Burst, Joshua Garrity of Kane and Rince, and Matt Ramsey of Do Try This at Home. There's only one song we can really end on. we'll see you next time come along to the forums if busting does indeed make you feel good